Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. I am your host, Matt Freeman, and I am Queen of the Fairies. Sorry we're a bit late this week, but Scott got chopped in half, and I've just been sitting here anxiously waiting for him to die so that I can steal his powers. I don't understand why you don't call a doctor, Matt. I am in quite a lot of pain. Could you at least give me, like, a monster in a box thingy? No. Fine. I guess I'll just... I guess I'll just power through. Because this is the podcast for you, a worm expert. Guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bill's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are covering Arc 27, Extinction. And holy shit, Matt, there's a lot to talk about here. Yep, this is one of the many, many arcs that I have been looking forward to covering for this entire show. It's kind of crazy because this is not any longer than anything we've done before, but we found that just like every chapter is just so dense and full yeah. of things, important things are happening. Of course, we're we're in the final uh, the final arc of our story now. So, I mean, not, not literal arc, but like story structure arc. So... So everything matters, everything's doing something, everything is important. And before we get started, one of the things that I want to talk about is like, I was thinking about like the momentous task that Wildbow had at hand starting off with this arc, because we just came off this bombshell of an interlude where we not only like recontextualized literally everything about superpowers, uh, where they came from, what they are, what do they mean, but we just took the literal like God character and turned him into the bad guy. <laughs> um, so, like, this was this was a bombshell. Um, this expanded the scope and the stakes. It's not just a battle for Brockton Bay. It's not just a battle for Earth. It's a battle for humanity. Every Earth. Every existence of humans. The scope yeah. has blown up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we probably could have talked about the, the Scion reveal and reversal e- even more because... I think it was done so deftly where he he doesn't um, there, there, he could have mentioned Scion as a possible risk too many times. And then it would have been at the at the tip of your mind as like, oh, yeah, well, it's going to be Scion. That's going to be what yeah, happens. Yeah. Or, or he could have not mentioned it at all as a possibility. And then that would have been really suspicious. And then you would have been like, yeah, it's definitely going to be Scion because he hasn't mentioned Scion at all. He's, he's, <laughs> a, but like he just, it's, it's just, it's on the table with all the other options of things that could go horribly wrong. Yeah. And, and so that, so it works super well, uh, as yeah. a reveal. And the thing, the thing that I really like most about this arc is, like I said, we had this, this, these stakes are so huge. And there's a real risk when you expand the stakes out that far that you're going to lose focus on your characters you're going to lose focus on what people like about this thing so much which is which is our characters and how they interact with each other so so wildbow had to expand the stakes out but keep that focus and and that's literally what he did did that the first three chapters of this arc are shrinking down we shrink our story down we've expanded the stakes but then we we personalize it this half of the arc and and indeed the the, the arc as a whole are really just about people and identity and Taylor in like in the wake of all the stuff searching for identity searching for who she is 
after all this stuff has happened. And that's a way, you know, to expand the stakes, but focus the character. And she, she finally starts examining herself on a real level at this point. And it, it works so well. It works so well at keeping those stakes on character where they, where they belong. And I, I can't wait to, to go through it all. I really can't. Yeah. And, and it's absolutely symphonic at this point because we've developed so many characters and we've had so much space that we've developed them all very deeply and very complexly. And now all of these different instruments, if you will, are coming together at the same time um, throughout this arc. And and it's it's uh, it, it's like Wildbo has been working on this this hot rod over the course of of the entire story and working on a piece here working on a piece there and you get to see all the pieces individually and now we're we're going into the final act the hot rod is complete and he's just showing us what it can do yeah i i like that metaphor a lot it's great and that's exactly what's happening here cool well uh let's do some some announcements right before we get into things so just another reminder of the fan art contest the theme of Dr. Yamada Saves the World. Artwork is due on Wednesday, November 22nd by 11.59 p.m. Yeah, and the, the the first ones are starting to trickle in, and we got some good entries so far, Matt, so I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but, but please, please, uh, yeah, please send those in, because yeah. we, we love it, and, and the reward is, is worth it, I think. I think so, too. Um, Matt, Matt uh, the person talking right now, wants to confess that his brain apparently subconsciously ripped off the comparison of of uh, of foils shard to uh, a shark from something that Wildbo said somewhere like years and years ago um, that I had read and processed and then thought that it was my own thought. So <laughs> for all of you that were laughing at me for doing that, I, I acknowledge that I did that, but it was not intentional. Sorry yeah, about I th- that. I think we need to like start a corrections corner on this podcast where we just... <laughs> admit the things that we are wrong about because i also said something wrong last week too matt which is that i said that that scion indicated that number man's shard was one of the dead ones and that's not that's not what he said number man's shard is not a dead shard um scott was was stupid okay yeah and i don't think i noticed that either so (laughs) i have to take some some blame for that yeah it's all your fault matt and so as we as we wrap up the announcements um we will be talking about what's next for we've got worm and and our our wild bow centric coverage uh at the end of the episode so stick around for that yeah that's our way to um beg for your forgiveness for being late this week so we're going to do that at the very end of the episode because while we want your forgiveness we also want to make sure you tune in throughout the entire episode (laughs) that's right (laughs) so that's right uh, so as for comments and questions, there were a lot of really good comments and questions this week. Um, I think Scott was just telling me how um, he feels like everyone remained civil to each other despite the uh, relatively tense subject matter and the potential for those discussions to go off the rails that we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was great. Um, other than other than saying that, though, this is going to be a monster of an episode. We don't have a lot of time to talk about individual comments and questions but but yeah it was it was a great discussion yeah and we're we're so, we're getting so close to the end now that like any kind of really deep questions and discussions you guys want to have we're going to have a massive mailbag episode at the end of it so we're going to try to pull out comments and questions as we can but we're we're getting close to the end so yeah start thinking of those yep all right so let's get into it we open up 27.1 
uh, with the capes all reacting to the news of Scion's ongoing rampage. The reactions are as varied as the personalities are. Yeah, I like that you said that because we do. We see some of the strongest among the us dropping to their knees. We see the mechs like literally unable to fly. It just like lands on a building and almost falls over. Um, and for the first time in a while, Taylor does not go into her bugs. She doesn't want to hear what her bugs hear, doesn't want to see what they see. Even her swarm at this point is not protection enough from the reality of the situation. It's a really powerful moment. Yeah, she's, she is very much in her body here, and, and I'm going to read her reaction. I raised my arms, then found myself unsure what to do with them. Hug them against my body, hit something, reach out to someone. I let my hands drop to my sides. I open my mouth to speak, to shout, to cry out, swear at the overcast sky above us. Then I shut it. And I I, I love the sense of helplessness and despair here. Um, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly effective. Um, th- they got Jack, but it doesn't matter. They failed. And there, there's nothing to, there's nothing to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing in her toolbox for this situation. There's nothing she can pull from to help her deal with this. You're absolutely right. They got Jack. They, they won. Um, and I think sometimes the worst defeat is the one that happens after you think that you were going to win because you know, there's all that training, all that planning, all those, those hard choices that you made and it's there, you did it, but then it, is just stripped away from you. And yeah. that feeling is really communicated through not only just what you just read, Taylor's just confusion with it all. Her, she's in shock for most of this chapter. And that really yeah. comes through. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Some of the capes are watching the desolation of the United Kingdom on a monitor. Uh, most of this chapter concerns Taylor and the other capes reeling from this horror. And we, we see all of the ones that she's been fighting with this whole time. We see revel collapses, Tecton is just frozen where he stands. Golem paces, watching the screens, as always. Chevalier is still in command, still a leader, still still barking orders and getting information. Rachel is angry, hunted, seems to have reverted. And and Rachel is the one who Taylor sympathizes with, most of all. Yeah, and, and once again, to, to reflect back to that moment at the beginning of the last arc, um, Taylor's kind of alone here, because she doesn't have her old team. She abandoned them. Um, she The team that she abandoned them for, she never really let herself bond with because the mission was too important. And the mission is gone now. So she doesn't really have every, anyone. Um, fortunately, there will always, always be Rachel. That's right. And, and so Taylor approaches Rachel and helps with the physical task of cutting the dogs out of their sacks. And yeah. I think this is is really good it's good because like they're both frustrated and that like they want to work out their aggression on this and nothing takes the edge off the end of the world quite like cutting dogs out of giant dog monster sacks right it's probably right? pretty satisfying actually yeah, i'm sure it is <laughs> it's like popping a pimple yeah a giant pimple that has a dog in it <laughs> so you pop a pimple and get a puppy <laughs> oh my god so Taylor and most of her team board the Dragonfly, and Taylor pilots it to, uh, to give herself something to do, mainly because she doesn't really need to. So they fly from West Coast to East Coast across the whole country, and they're seeing people running, highways choked with cars. The landscape is cracked and smoking as they get further east, and then Osion has hit a number of other nations across the world, too. 
Yeah, this is one of those really cinematic moments that you and I always talk about. Um, I can see that whole flight. I can see the people running the chaos. It's one of those, like, it's so weird to have a show-don't-tell moment in a book, because, like, it's all technically tell, but, like, you don't, you almost don't even need to say anything here. She just describes what the people are doing, and the panic, and the hopelessness, and the, everything is, is just there, and you can see it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with this being cinematic. So they finally reach Brockton Bay and it's just it's just smashed. The foundation of the city is split and everything is shattered and, and has settled tens of feet. Most of the buildings have collapsed. It's just a, a ruin. Yeah, we didn't mention that uh, last week on the podcast, but Sion destroyed the United Kingdom and then turned and there's that line that um, he fired a blast towards a, a city on the other side of the ocean, which was Brockton Bay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so we just we see more of what's going on with the damage. The chaotic effects of the scar where Makoto's bombs are all detonated are spreading and containment foam is being used to regain control. Yeah, someone said last week that I didn't like containment foam the first time I saw it, Matt. That's just that's just false. That's totally false. What I said was containment foam was clearly so powerful that it should just be used constantly for everything. And the story just continues to prove me right at every at every pass. Hashtag yeah. foamed for life. Hashtag justice for foam. Yeah, well, I'm sure the people of the containment foam planet agree with you. <laughs> well, they're dead. Oh, oh, I forgot. It's That's sad. sad. It's very sad. So at this point, apparently the ocean is is being held back by a force field, which would otherwise it would otherwise gush in and wipe away the entire city. So yeah. good job setting up that force field. Yeah. Um, my dad's house was gone, collapsed. Nobody inside. Winslow High, gone. The mall, the library, Fugly Bob's, no! the boat graveyard. <laughs> My old hideout, gone. My old territory, unrecognizable. The boardwalk was underwater now. Yeah, and these are, I, I love, we go over all these things. We go down the list. All these things that Taylor worked so hard to save and protect. All those hard choices she made to save her father, to save her people, to bring her city back from the brink. It's gone. It's all gone. And it's kind of no wonder that we finally get a more introspective Taylor over these few chapters, because everything that she has done has been in the service of helping these people and preventing this destruction. And she failed. Yeah, she's really been fighting this losing battle the yeah. whole the whole time. And she didn't realize how how much of a losing battle it was. And, and neither did we really until we got that last interlude. Uh, but now we understand um, that this is. This is child's play compared to the level of destruction that this uh, being fully intends to dish out. Yep. Um, so, yeah, Taylor reminds us that she was never inaugurated as as a member of the Protectorate. This was supposed to be her day to join the good guys. <laughs> and this is, of course, one of those beats that I, I really want to read a lot into because, you know, we uh, we had Taylor like on the verge of becoming labeled a hero of the protectorate here um officially formally a hero officially weaver and then the world or rather the end of it gets in the way of that so we've seen her heading down this path for the last few arcs and then suddenly that path is gone and once again she's kind of forced to find a new one and this is what leads her to this identity crisis that she's having through most of these chapters yeah yeah that's absolutely what's happening here um this this whole this whole arc is a prolonged identity crisis yeah so Taylor and Rachel help the rescue workers pull people out of the wreckage. Um, 
there were more. Almost without thinking about it, I, I let myself slide back into the mindset I'd held for the past two years, sublimating what I wanted to do in favor of doing what needed to be done. So even here, she failed her mission, but she picks up a new mission without pausing. She just can't stop. Yeah, and I, I like this a lot because one of the most fascinating things about Taylor, and I think, you know, well-written characters in general, is that some of their most negative traits can also sometimes be their most positive because i think you're right here that taylor always needs a mission and she's always used that the importance of that mission to justify the 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 bad things that she's done the bad choices that she's made but that same mission-centric attitude also allows her to keep going to keep pushing to save people that need saving and i think this is a great example of why she is such a complicated fascinating wonderful character and really why i love her so much yeah i agree Rachel starts to lose interest on their humanitarian work, though, until they come across a little girl clutching her dead puppy, and then Rachel becomes focused again. And this, of course, is why I love Rachel. Yeah, I like that because it, it, it reminds us, like, yes, Rachel is like a loving person. She just has some wires loose. Yep. So they join Vista and Clockblocker, using all of their powers in concert to locate and extract people safely. As they're doing this, Scion attacks the very crust of the earth in the distance, and the city settles a bit more. Taylor is forced to carry a guy off of a collapsing building and to drop him into a tree when her flight pack can't support both of them. Yeah. So not only is this like a holy shit moment where Scion is literally fucking with plate tectonics, which is just like, holy shit. You never, you don't fuck with plate tectonics, man. That's, no. that's Tecton's job. It's well known. Yeah. Um, but I also really like that beat uh, that that Taylor saving the guy, but to save him, she kind of has to hurt him. That she throws him in that tree and he ends up breaking his arm. But hey, he's alive. Um, and there's something to that idea that you know, in order to save the world, you're going to have to maybe hurt it a little bit. And we've seen this in Taylor's efforts time and time again. And then I think here's another kind of confirmation of that idea. Yeah, I I, I couldn't help but notice that she. Feels a little bit miffed that the guy didn't like didn't uh, thank her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's in quite a lot of pain, Taylor. Yeah, you threw me into a tree. Um, yeah, so they work to save people for some time, but eventually they silently agree to head for the portal. Uh, the t- the tower that surrounded the portal has collapsed, but Bastard jumps through it with Rachel, and Taylor follows through on her flight back. So this is the first time that she's been on Earth Gimel, and it's the first time that we have too, as far as I know. Uh, she observes the densely packed city that is being built around the portal. Yeah, yeah, we're now here on this this whole new world. Um, and I, I really do like the beat that as as Taylor follows Rachel through the portal, she kind of realized that she doesn't have a home anywhere. She doesn't have anywhere to belong. And and we're echoing that earlier beat when we when Taylor looked around and realized that all these people had other people to turn to. They they had someone to go to, they had someone to lean on or, or, or something to do when she had nothing. And so once again, she picks, she goes with Rachel. She's Rachel's there. She follows Rachel and she follows Rachel to Rachel's home. It's the only person she has left. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I kind of wanted to point out that they were helping people and they were digging people out for some time, presumably. Um, but at a certain point they, you know, you realize that there's probably like, millions of people who who need help yeah and 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 they just say okay we need to we need to take stock i guess you know you don't look you don't see into her head as to like what is her justification for deciding to leave it's more of an emotional like 
okay i i need to get out of here type yeah, thing just like just like exhaustion you can't do it anymore it's like i mean imagine the mental toll like shifting through rubble to get dead bodies and live bodies out of it like i can't i can't imagine yeah yeah right um so as they're moving into the portal she sees people at benches were clipping the corners off of refugees driver's licenses and trading them for food rations and tents i just pulled that out because i love that very practical realistic detail yeah and it it kind of matches with the idea of the end of the world being an eventuality instead of just a possibility that they planned for all this stuff and because i remember when when the portal first opened when we first had earth gimmel as a possibility it was all about money and resources a whole planet worth of resources and and escape was there in the background but in that time it seems to have just become all about escape and that the resources and the money portion of it is just kind of a, a second thought. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So they, they find some signs announcing the names of, of the lost pe- people looking for each other. Um, she thinks to herself, if I ever had the opportunity to get revenge, to get back at Scion for doing this, I wanted to remember these faces, find just a little more strength, make it hurt that much more. And I, I like this. I drew this out because this is usually not Taylor's approach. This is usually more like Golem's approach. Um, however, it, it's like Golem's approach in the sense that she's actually making herself look at the suffering. Um, but as usual for Taylor, she's looking at their suffering as fuel for herself. So it's it's a it's a tool for her. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I my initial reaction to reading this was to say, oh look, she learned something from Golem uh, that we we can't look away from the dead we have to acknowledge them we have to remember them but you're right this is this is not taylor honoring the dead not really it's using them as a tool like you said it's it's putting another tool in her toolbox to motivate future action um Mm -hmm. the mission is not honor the dead is is not uh, avenge the dead the mission is just kill scion and she's going to use whatever thing she needs to get there yeah i agree she stumbles upon the Barnes family as she wanders through the growing um, refugee camps and they're all devastated and Emma isn't present and Taylor assumes that Emma's dead. Alan and the sister, Anne, look at Taylor with accusation. And why would they blame me for failing to stop this from happening? Fuck that. So I think this is an important moment because it tells, um, it tells us that for all the fact that Taylor took extreme ownership of the task of saving the world, she doesn't feel like it's her personal failure that she didn't prevent the end of the world. And I think that would have been kind of an obvious route to go of like Taylor gets really down about things because she feels like she failed and and this is her fault. But I think it's more interesting and more true to her character that she's just like, Nope, I'm going to keep going forward. It's I didn't, I, you know, I did what I could and that's, there's no point in wallowing. Yeah, and and I think there's something to the fact that that blame is coming external. Like, I think if that blame had been an internal reaction, and I think on some level she does blame herself, whether she's ready to acknowledge that or not. But because it's coming from someone else, because it's external to her, she can't and won't accept it. She completely rejects it because she can't handle it. Like, she can't handle other people blaming her. Yeah, I I agree that she definitely has that kind of asymmetry in her character. Yeah, and I I, want to talk about that. Uh, accusatory look from her parents and and the death of of Emma in general, though, because I think it's 
Taylor immediately jumps to that, oh, you blame me for the world ending thing. And I think, you know, I think it's a lot, a lot more personal than that. At least my interpretation is it because the last time we left Emma, she was, she was rocking back and forth and basically catatonic. We had that whole three beat where Taylor, like, inadvertently or unknowing to her like destroyed emma's entire belief system just by existing uh that you basically threw away her entire survival mechanism and then she kind of makes matters worse by like specifically fucking with her with her bugs like she scares her to death at one point and it, it's not hard to imagine a situation in which emma leaves the school that day absolutely destroyed like back to how she was prior to that original ABB attack, terrified of of everything, terrified of leaving her room, a- and maybe the reason she's dead is because she refused to leave her room. She couldn't go outside; she was too scared, and she just continually mutters about Taylor and 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 how this has destroyed her. So, so that's what her parents are looking at Taylor for. That's what they're they're blaming Taylor for, and it's not too hard to see that play out. But of course. To Taylor, it's a reflection of maybe the the underlying guilt that she feels. So it immediately goes to, it's your fault this specifically happened. Yeah, I think that's really plausible. Um, yeah, we, we don't we don't know we don't know exactly what happened, and we're left to kind of fill in the blanks. But I mean, Taylor is you know responsible to the extent that she probably did scare the hell out of Emma. But it's I don't think it was her fault necessarily and i I, I don't think i don't think it's it was her fault either but it it, if you have this situation where emma goes to school we know her parents know that there was a conflict with taylor there because that's when she was revealed to be skitter and then her their daughter comes home and she's destroyed again so yeah they're 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 placing blame there but i don't think it's 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 fair but yeah understandable yeah 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 it's understandable yeah so yeah, from here she basically just walks away, and then she flies up to Rachel's cabin, which is decorated with bison skulls. Landing, she considers that her flight pack won't be so easy to maintain anymore now that all of human civilization has been smashed. Yeah, and of course the flight pack serves as kind of part of her costume, part of her identity, and and we're once again discussing how things are going to need to change and adapt to a post Scion is bad guy world. Um, and this is, this is another hint that, 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 that part of her identity, that part of her costume is going to have to change eventually. Yeah. Sorry. I'm briefly super distracted by the idea that these bison were just happily living their existence on their planet. And then suddenly, (laughs) suddenly these aliens from another dimension came in and then started borrowing of their evolution to cover their bodies and their skin and, and use their skulls for decoration. Oh my God. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So inside the cabin are Taylor's former underlings and the kids they take care of, as well as Rachel's henchmen. She sees sympathy on Lisa's face and deduces that her dad is unaccounted for and probably dead. I got to admit, Matt, this revelation devastated me more than I thought it would. Um, I, I really I really love Danny. He's. He's never been the perfect father, but I think there was a, his heart was kind of always in the right place, and and he he was having to deal with things that your average dad uh, would would not have to deal with, and I I really appreciated him, and I'm really sad I'm really sad that he's gone. Yeah, it's really, it's yeah, a bummer. Yeah, it's it's it it definitely affects it affected me a lot too. Um, it, it's it's removing her last kind of um 
you know, we've we, we, we talked about how she doesn't have the firmest relationships with with people in general. She kind of she kind of sort of sort of burns some bridges with the undersiders. She never really formed good relationships with the Chicago wards. And, and mm-hmm. her dad was was like the rock through all this. And so that's that's taken away from her now. And it's um, understandably this is the, this is the thing that sets her off, really. And this is what she does is she she just she just walks out the door and she flies away. She flies up and over the bay, away from the city, out over the water. Um, away from this alien earth, I blinded myself with my own swarm, drowned everything out with their drone, their buzz, their roar. All of this time, the sacrifices, the loss of security, the loss of me. To do what? To stop this? It had happened despite all our, our attempts to the contrary. Matt, this is huge. Um, like, we, we've we've been talking about this, you and I have been talking about this for a while, that, that Taylor was losing herself and... and this mission and attempt to do things and, and, but, but Taylor recognizing it, Taylor admitting it, Taylor stating it, the loss of me. Is this growth? Is this realization? Is it actually happening? Does it, does it take everything being torn away from her to finally realize who she is? I mean, I think it does. And I think it makes sense because she's been, she's been down in her mission. She's been in this status quo for so long and all of the things that kind of rooted her are destroyed. Yeah. And and all and her mission is gone. And not only is it gone, that it's failed. Um so yeah. if if you're not gonna pause and reflect now, then I don't know when you would. So so yeah. And, and yeah. we and we've seen this before in the book, right? We've seen every time the mission is complete or success or failure. Taylor's had a brief moment of introspection where she's like, okay, what do I do now? How do I, how do I correct? Like, where do I, where do I go? What do I do? And she's had these brief moments, but it's never been to this level. It's never been this, this bad before. So this is finally the one that, that seems to finally rip those compartments down. Yeah. Yeah. So as she flies, she's aware of the fuel gauge on her flight back taking down but she flies on. She feels that she can't bring herself to go back and do something minor. She can't help with the search and rescue while the destruction is ongoing. And she badly needs a hug. But, quote, I couldn't get to Rachel without going through the others. My dad was even farther from my reach. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And I know I'm quoting a lot, but the mask I directed to see things through to this point was cracking. And I couldn't bear to show anyone my face. The mask, Scott. The mask. Um, and this is the start of a beat we're going to hit a lot of times throughout this arc. We're going to talk about masks, the masks we wear, the masks we put on our faces, um, how we define ourselves, how we identify ourselves. And it's going to continue all the way throughout the end of this arc with with Eidolon. Um, and it's an echo of what, what Golem was talking about during his chapters last week. Um, but but the significance here is that it's coming from Taylor, that th- this mask is, is a is a manifestation of Taylor's compartmentalization, the thing that she hides behind. And yep. this is so huge because not only is she realizing that she's doing it, but she's acknowledging that it's breaking down. She says it's cracking and, and we're going to hit this a lot, but it's so, it's like, I like it's, it's weird because we're in this moment of devastation of hopelessness, but I can't help but feel excited that we're seeing our character, grow a little bit and and hopefully learn from this experience yeah definitely and i'm glad you mentioned that it was it was golem's it was golem's metaphor or or, or device whatever 
Um, and she's kind of adopted it and put her own spin on it, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah. she passes a point where she won't have enough fuel to return. And at around this point, a cauldron portal opens behind her with Paddletail inviting her in. Yeah, this this is so huge. Um, Taylor gives up here for a moment, uh, almost entirely gives up. And I had someone when I was going through my my live read on Twitter um, ask me about the scene because I didn't I didn't call attention to Taylor's uh, quote unquote suicide attempt here. Um, and I don't I don't know if calling it a suicide attempt is accurate. Um, I I think Taylor is certainly in a situation where she would be in a lot of trouble if Lisa and Cauldron had not shown up. I don't think she's set out specifically here to commit suicide. Um, I don't think Taylor wanted to die in this moment. I just think she just didn't care enough to stop it from happening. Yeah, I think she's just she's just over, overwhelmed. She's yeah. just completely overwhelmed, and and this isn't a decision. This is just despair. Right. And right. And it's no surprise at all that she, you know, flies back through the portal and, and then and then doesn't, you know, proceed to try to kill herself again because yeah. that was that was not really what she was well, and we, aiming and, to do. And we get a beat later in the arc on the, the oil rig where she's realizes she thinks back to that suicide attempt and realizes that even if Lisa and Cauldron had not showed up, she she would not have died there. She would have continued to fight because that's just the way she is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she does get that no, no drama hug from Lisa that she needed. And as she gets this hug, she notices that she is now the taller of the two. Yeah. Um, I, I love I love the hug. I love like the fact that Lisa is especially equipped to give her that no questions, no drama hug that she wants. Because, of course, Lisa knows that that's what she wants. But that that small, tiny beat about how Lisa is shorter than her. And and we didn't talk about it, but. She commented when she was seeing Parian and Foyle hug each other. She commented on the fact that Foyle was taller than Parian, but was like being supported by her. And and she saw that as kind of unusual, this look of the taller one um, being supported by the shorter one. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a reflection in like, I think she's looking at that and the confusion of as taller equals bigger equals stronger. And the idea that she doesn't think the stronger person should have to be supported by the weaker person. She thinks it's the other way around, but she finds here that she, the taller person in this situation absolutely does need that. And I think that's yeah. a really tiny minor beat, but I think it's, it's so wonderfully expressed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, uh, yet another thing that makes me love Lisa as a character. Right. Yeah. So that, that ends when, and we move on into 27.2. So, 27.1 was our big um, um, character chapter where, where we are introduced to the concepts that are going to be showing their faces throughout the arc. Um, we, we ground everything in emotions and people and, and characters. 27.2 is another big meeting chapter. And I love I always love these big meeting chapters because yeah. we get to see the, the sparks fly between all these personalities. And like I said, this is the hot rod with the, <laughs> with the, with the hammer down. Right. Yep. So we have 13 different panels representing different groups, different teams. All the undersiders are present with Tattletail as spokeswoman. And Gru's darkness is particularly active today. So he's he's doing well then. Yeah, as well as he can. <laughs> she tries to control her own ag- agitation and she settles for keeping her body still as her bugs crawl over her in slow rotation. So the undersiders probably look pretty scary right now. Yeah, that's going to be terrifying. Oh my yeah. god. 
And uh, then he, I looked at Golem, and he averted his eyes very deliberately, turning his attention to the other groups around the perimeter of the room. Was he ashamed? Angry? I couldn't parse it. So I pulled this out because we don't get a lot of beats on how Golem is doing, and it seems like he's not doing great. This is not a good outcome for him, and I doubt that he gives himself any credit at all for ultimately taking Jack down. Yeah, in fact, he probably blames himself, actually. Not only does he not give himself credit, yeah, he he blames himself for it. Yeah, that Uh, makes sense based on his psychology. Yeah, I like that you pulled this out, too, though, because... I think this is the first beat of a couple we'll get in this arc where we see Taylor looking at another person making, uh, expressing an emotion and Taylor can't read it, but she defaults it as one of two things, uh, anger or guilt. Um, and I think that's just funny that those are the two different things she goes to because those are the two different things that she's feeling right now. So she's kind of projecting a little bit there. Um, but there's also just like a chance in here that Golem is just noticing that Taylor has lined up with the Undersiders here, that she's back with her old crew and it's basically abandoned the Chicago group. So he could just be, like, bummed out that, like, she's yeah. it's just, bye, Chicago guys. I don't care about yeah. you anymore. Right. And, I mean, he, he kind of, I think in his mind, Taylor was always an Undersider who yeah, was joining true. the heroes for instrumental reasons. And this just, this just kind of clarifies that and yeah he probably does feel a little bit rejected on some level i don't know if that's where his head is at exactly but i think yeah. that's an understandable take on his character yeah sure um our dragon's tooth soldier is still present uh still nameless yeah i've named him though his name is uh michael mcfoam okay he's, he's irish all right cool yeah i look forward to the fan fiction that you're going to write that, that's not that's not gonna happen oh okay <laughs> So Defiant is in the process of giving a speech. Um, and to interrupt this, from a pure writing perspective, I want to point out the technique of how this intro scene was carried out. So we get several paragraphs of Taylor surveying the room uh, and looking at over all the capes, all the, all the people who were there, before we were informed that Defiant is mid-sentence uh, giving a speech. And it works perfectly. And the thing is, like, if, if I were writing a similar scene, I would feel pressured to mention immediately upon the POV character entering a room that somebody is speaking before describing the scene. But I think Wildbo's choice here is better in in terms of describing the scene and then saying, oh yeah, by the way, define speaking. Because Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the order in which your brain kind of paints the scene for you. And it feels completely natural. It's only something I even noticed on on multiple read-throughs and was like, oh, that's a that's a good bit of writing technique that I'll have to I'll have to pay attention to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right here. And I think like Sometimes in writing, you're really tempted to set the scene like as early and clearly as possible because you want to make sure everything comes across the way you're imagining it in your head. But I think this fits with with Taylor's head and and Taylor tends to focus on the things that she's concerned about before the other stuff. So she's looking around. She's observing other things. She's not paying attention to defiant speech um, until she's ready to get to it. So we don't hear it. Oh, yeah, that's a great point that she. She, we're actually seeing the order in which she processes things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what, what, uh, what Defiant was doing, what he was saying was he is, he was castigating Saint for failing to do Dragon's job well enough and that there are millions of deaths due to his failures so far. Yeah. So, um, that's my speculation about Saint, unfortunately, right? Um, he, he declared Dragon as too dangerous to exist anymore, too dangerous to go on, but he's like way worse at doing everything that she did, of course. Um, and I think this this kind of confirms that whether Saint was right or wrong in his decision at the time, I think now we can safely and definitively say 
Fuck you, Saint. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to list all of them, but each of the teams present has their own logo over their panel. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And we see that Dinah is with Fault Line's crew now. Yeah, I thought about this for a while because at first it jumped out at me as like, huh, I wonder why that is. But I think it was confirmed that Dinah is like selling her services to people. Um, so I guess her working with the team of mercenaries makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's also the element where Dinah will always just do the thing that seems like the future numbers look the best. So yeah. maybe she was just like, oh, OK, all That's right. Now. Yeah. Damn precogs. Yeah. So last we have the little girl with the nine on the panel above her. It's Riley. Um, I guess now we kind of understand why Gru is, is mid darkness panic attack guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he must be having such a rough day. You yeah. know, everybody, everybody gets killed and then they're like, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to sort this out. We're going to sort it out. Gru come in, come in here. Oh, here. Yeah. Bone saw is here at the table. Yeah. Don't worry about yeah. it. She's good now. Maybe kind of. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> We also have the representatives from the Thanda, the Yangban, the Elite, the South American Capes, the Suits, the Three Blasphemies, and the Irregulars. And uh, I think, was it you who said that Weld has gone goth now? Is that no. a tweet? No, I said he went metal. Oh, he went metal. Because that's a oh. funnier joke. Okay. That, that, that is, is way funnier. That does make more sense. <laughs> He's also wearing uh, Garot. I yeah. never know if I say that name right. I think it's Garot. Um, I think that's what we Garot, decided it was. Garot, yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, lots of fun world world buildings surrounding all these cape groups. Yeah, well, wearing Sveta is like the most wonderful little detail I've ever seen, and I think we're going to learn more about their relationship as the arc progresses. But this made me made me happy. Like it's just yeah. this little detail that like a little way of showing that he is physically supporting her. This girl that was last time we saw her was in such a rough place. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 her 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 literal support. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, the meeting starts off with Weld challenging the doctor. His perspective is that Cauldron is most likely to be behind all this. Taylor realizes that Cauldron knew this would happen, and she blurts it out. The doctor admits that she did, and that it's better this way. It's better that it happened now instead of later. If it had been pushed off, then there would have been fewer parahumans, fewer powers to leverage against Zion. Yeah, man, Taylor sure seems angry about the fact that Cauldron knew about Scion but didn't do anything to stop him because they, like, weighed their options and then felt the best decision was the one that ensured victory, even if it meant making difficult choices that left a whole bunch of people dead. Huh. Taylor. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Um, so, so, so the number man, <laughs> the number man, the number man explains things to us. Cause and effect. A local gang leader by the name of Lung was arrested by Arms Master the leader of the local protectorate team. He paused very deliberately, very knowingly, before continuing. A subordinate member of the gang goes on a rampage, escalating violence and forcing another local cape to advance his plans for taking over the city. He already has the very talented Dinah Alcott, and he recruits the undersiders and the travelers to remove enemies from the board and bring them into his camp. The latter group of heroes sets the seeds for a later fiasco, the Echidna event. Conflict in the dormant Echidna's presence lead Leviathan lead to Leviathan attacking, which leads us in turn to the Nine visiting. I could go on, naming the Undersiders' actions in regards to seizing the city and stopping Coil, but you know the story. Uh, so no, Scott, none, none of this is Taylor's fault at all. <laughs> but in fairness, uh, the number man does clarify that it's not so much Taylor caused this as 
the status quo is inherently unstable and almost anything could cause a similar dissolution. Right. And I think that is the most important distinction here. Um, did Taylor set off a chain events of events that led to the mess that happened in Brockton Bay over the course of this book? Yes. Does that make her solely responsible for the situation we're in now? No. Um, it, it like, like number man says, it could have been anything. It could have been anyone. It just, it just happened to be her. And, but like Taylor killing Aster, I, I don't think it matters so much what, whether you blame her or don't blame her directly for these things. Like, I think we can sit up here in our, in our fortress of moraltude, which is what, um, which is what I call my, my podcasting studio. If, <laughs> if you didn't, if you didn't know that. Um, but we we can sit here in our chairs and say, look what you did, Taylor. It's your fault. But that is kind of irrelevant. What matters is how Taylor feels about it. What matters if she feels responsible. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever talked about blame in these terms, but, you know, Taylor wouldn't have wouldn't and couldn't have done the things she did if it weren't for the fact that she was terribly bullied. Um, yeah. So is it Emma's fault? It's and, all but Emma's no, fault. But but Emma wouldn't have done the things that she did if she weren't victimized by. So so like it's it's all it's all just a, a waterfall that has no actual original source. Yeah. You know, it's it's all just a it's all just a mess. Yep. Yeah. So the doctor says, uh, yes. The doctor said we weren't helping it along, but we're not overly upset. In fact, we consider this a best case scenario. And Taylor almost attacks the doctor on the spot for saying this, but <laughs> Chevalier has an outburst, which which stops her from doing that. Yeah, I think we're going to talk more about this in a bit. But just because you're forced into a terrible choice for the greater good doesn't mean you have to be so fucking cavalier about it. I probably want to hit her too here. Yeah, she. The doctor does have some problems with tact. tact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, apparently Cauldron is already engaged in evacuating people from cities to different Earths closing portals behind them. Furthermore, Cauldron expects to fail in their efforts. For all they've done, the prospects aren't good at all. And she says, because we decided in the very beginning that we don't want to be left wondering if we could have done more in the moments before humanity ceases to exist. Why did we make you into what you are, Weld? Because it was an option, a step forward. Why did we keep it secret? It improved our chances. Why did we not tell you about Scion? Because it improved our chances. I know what it's like, I responded. I've walked down that road. Maybe not so ugly a road, but I've gone that route. All the way along, I told myself it sucked, but I wouldn't do it differently. I did everything I did for a reason. Except now, having reached the point I was working towards, I do finally regret regret it all. The last two years, the way I treated my teammates, leaving the undersiders, I'd change it all in a heartbeat. Holy shit, Matt. Yeah. Holy shit. So not only do we have cauldrons, like plan revealed here and and we have cauldron from this pure consequentialist standpoint their their view is logical and possibly even morally sound right um things happening now as they are give humanity its greatest chance for success yeah they let thousands possibly millions of people die yeah they tortured people and turned them into monsters and then erased their memory and dropped them in a world that that hates them uh yeah they allowed the creation of other monsters that would go on to kill a bunch more people yeah they created gray boy who is possibly one of the single worst capes we've seen thus far but if mankind is saved isn't that worth it and this is the ultimate distillation of taylor's entire philosophy throughout this book that that 
sometimes doing the bad thing for the right reasons is the better thing. But here, in this moment, when we have that ultimate distillation of it, Taylor's reaction is to reject it, is to say no. Like, I regret doing that. I regret going down that path. I regret what it did to me and the people I care about. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah, it's extremely important. And and perhaps even, um, I, I mean, this is at the core of the themes of this book, I would say, is this idea yeah. that this this character who who defined herself in this way is now rejecting that 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 way of being and she spends most of this arc actually exploring this idea where she talks with various people and explicitly talks about how hey this is uh this kind of sucks actually yeah. like this this is i yeah i've i've been doing this i made all these decisions the, this compartmentalization and self-justification and all these things that that frankly that you and i have been uh kind of kind of hard on her about she's she's saying yeah this was this was a mistake yeah yeah absolutely Very and important. It, and and that's like, I think that's, you have to remember the human element. You have to remember what that does to a person, what these hard decisions do, not from a, a logical, moral standpoint, but to a human being, what it does. And mm-hmm. that's what, I think that's what we were trying to express throughout this book, that the, the things we were afraid of, that every time she made that choice, every time she did that thing, what was it doing to her? What was it leading her to? And it's great to see her reject this now. Yeah, because I think the choices are you become someone like the doctor who basically becomes numb to it or you or you reject it. So, yeah. Right, right. So finally, having revealed the full measure of Cauldron's position and plan, we move on to planning. Tattletale brings everybody up to speed in one of her Sherlock Holmes speeches. <laughs> she tells them basically what we found out in the last interlude, um, although she's enjoying it a little bit too much. It's kind of nice to have this summary at this point, I think, because if you're reading the story normally um, or super, super fast, like most people, um, then and, and not, say, doing a podcast deep study of it, <laughs> then then it can be very helpful to have all this stuff spelled out concisely at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it even helped me uh, just to make sure I was all was all caught up and there with it. Um, and I really like that you point out how much Tattletale is enjoying this because she absolutely is. And we've talked about how much Taylor tends to like take over a situation, uh, organize it, control it, take action. I think that's a reflection of her personality and her power, her, her shard. Lisa, on the other hand, hers is, is figuring stuff out and getting to share that stuff and feeling useful. If Taylor lives for action, if, if Idolan lives to fight, Lisa lives to talk and to share information. And this mystery that's been frustrating her, probably nagging at her over the course of this book, is is finally solved. And she's able to share. And so she's so happy about it. Yeah. I think we're we're pretty vicariously happy for her, too, even though the yeah. stuff she's talking about is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So. The doctor adds some flavor, too. She shows that Scion isn't just killing. He's experimenting, refining his methods, evolving. In one African city, he kills everyone who had hit puberty, leaving a whole city of orphans. In Russia, he just started fires and let them burn, keeping people from escaping the inferno and letting them burn to death. I don't know how you make Golden Man rampaging around the world worse than it already was, but it's worse. Yeah. Fault Lion proposes talking to him again, trying to get him to leave. Telltale explains that leaving for Scion will involve destroying all Earths. <laughs> yeah, 
that would that would happen. That is true. So at this point, they ungag Bonesaw, and at this point, she's still acting childish like Bonesaw. Um, and and then uh, we we unleash Shadowtail at, at her. The murderous little tot uh, had a change of heart, a partial change of heart. Let's be honest. You're not going to turn away from the art of your power that easily, are you? You'll still crave to do something interesting, and maybe that interesting is at the expense of others. It can be at the expense of bad people, Bonesaw said. Does that work? So, yeah, I really like this. It's just such a believable redemption for her because, like, she's not good. Like, she, she didn't suddenly become a good guy. She knows that she's a monster. She still wants to do those monstrous things, but she's trying to control it instead of letting it control her. Yeah, I like it a lot, too, because redemption is not a switch. It's a long, long, hard road. You don't just stop being the person you've become. You have to take daily steps and work towards it. And Riley is far from a good person, far from okay. But I think as long as she remains in a state of not being happy with the person she was or is and wants to change, um, then then she will make progress. And she now, with Jack's uh, capture has the opportunity to do that. Yep. So Tattletail gets her to drop the act and Riley emerges. Tattletail gets around to really dismantling her now, uh, saying that everything Bonesaw ever made was really Jack's art, not her own. Uh, the moment when she first talks in her own voice around everyone gave me goosebumps. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know why it's just like, like you can imagine the voice lowering a few octaves and just, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so the, the and this whole bit with Tattletail, I, I love that that we're reminded. It's been a while since we saw Tattletail do this. Yeah. But she, um, Bonesaw is you know one of the scariest antagonists of the story, and Tattletail dismantles her and leaves her like a, a sagging wreck. So Tattletail's Tattletail's rough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they ask. Um, how they were able to get Jack that way. And Golem explains his reasoning regarding why he used the, the dragon tooth soldier because Weaver surrounds herself with bugs and Jack surrounds himself with capes. The non cape is the only variable we hadn't seriously tried. The competent non cape McFoam, you're my boy. So even bone saw being let off the leash was a test, uh, part of Jack's games to see how she would operate. She's not even close to redemption. And Taylor thinks, fuck me, was I feeling a pang of sympathy? Yeah, that's just me during the entirety of reading Bonesaw's interlude. Do I, do I sympathize with this person now? Yeah. Fuck. Uh, it's funny It's funny that Taylor's point of view takes a nod to, to the fact that, like, you know, once you see her as a human, you kind of yeah. can't help no matter what you wanted to. Yeah, and like, there, there's real tragedy to the fact that you think you are making progress, you think you are moving forward, and actually, no, that's just part of of the manipulation on you it's really yeah. it's really a bummer yeah definitely yeah so she tells riley to give up the remote but riley still refuses and uh contessa just apparently gets tired of waiting and just contesses it yeah and this is a the start of like a contessa path to victory related three beat that might pay off in some kind of huge way at the end of the arc maybe maybe yeah yeah this is another uh, man yeah uh, goes without saying that like the 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 way this lands at the end of the arc would not hit quite as hard if this hadn't been sprinkled in throughout the arc to remind us that this is a mechanic of how things work in the yep. story yep so defiant tells them that he will surrender the keys of the birdcage under two conditions 
Um, Saint steps down and teacher remains in the cage. Saint agrees to step down, but insists the teacher be set free. Yeah, we still don't really know much about teacher, um, short of the fact that Saint, a known asshole, is working for him. Mm-hmm. And, and thusly, by the transitive property, teacher is also an asshole. I believe so. Yeah, so I, I just mathed my way out of that one, Matt. Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, and Saint is kind of upset that Defiant is is making this the condition for, for helping because he thinks Defiant should just cooperate. And Defiant says, I'm inclined towards tunnel vision. For now, a great deal of my focus is turned toward one task, denying you what you want. Oh, he's just like Taylor. Aww. Yeah. They're they're best friends. <laughs> and this is such a fun chapter. We're putting all of our chess pieces on the table at the same time and watching this interplay. Yeah. Um this is really where we get to see like the revelations of that last interlude play out in a great way. And like we were saying about at the, the top of the episode, like everything in Orm, it's really rooted in character. We have Defiant, Saint, Ridley, Tattletail, Golem, Well, Taylor. We know these people so much. We understand them. And as they all play their cards, as this information comes out, uh, we know what it all means to them. The stakes are so high here. The scope is so massive, but but it's rooted in character and we keep our focus on character and it keeps it from getting too unwieldy and too lost. Mm-hmm. Yep. So imp tries to tag along with the cauldron folks as they leave, but Contessa sniffs her out. And that's just like the fucking best thing ever, ever. Yeah. Yep. A bit later, Taylor enters a prison a normal prison, not, not the bird cage to talk to somebody. Hi, shadow stalker. I told Sophia Taylor. She replied, Oh, fuck. Uh, My first thought here was like, let's see how new and approved Taylor actually handles things. But also, I like that we establish things directly. Like, Taylor specifically calls Sophia by her cape name. Uh, Sophia specifically calls Taylor by her non-cape name. And that seems intentional to kind of set the the tone of what this conversation is going to be. Yeah, yeah. And it is really interesting. I I don't know how how many times this appears during the story, but it seems unusual that she says, hi, shadow stalker. I told Sophia. So she uses her, <laughs> she thinks of her as Sophia, but she calls her shadow stalker. Yeah, so, and, yeah. And, and to me, that's, that's telegraphing the fact that calling her by her Cape name is a deliberate, maybe to dig at the fact that like, because Sophia is here in prison garb, like trapped. And she's not really a Cape anymore. She's just a prisoner. So I think it's an intentional dig to call her by her Cape name. Yeah, I, I wonder, I, th- I feel like they've never had a conversation since since all this came out, you know? Yeah, yeah. So basically, they kidnapped her and Regent controlled her for a while and then kind of never saw her again, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, we, we move on to 27.catharsis. <laughs> I'm sorry, 27.3. Um, so Taylor opens up the visit by informing her that Emma is dad. Uh, dead which sophia doesn't seem to care about at all uh, or is that just a mask taylor wonders funny just how easily those masks came to people costumes were nothing in the grand scheme of things cloth or kevlar spider silk or steel it was the false faces we wore the layers of defenses the ti- the lies we told ourselves that formed the real barrier between us and the hostile world around us yep there's that metaphor again uh, in that first chapter taylor felt her mask breaking and now suddenly she begins to notice everyone else's. Um, we, we, we've we talked so much about Taylor's growth 
and sometimes her lack of growth as a character uh, on the podcast so far. But but hearing her talk about masks, hearing her talk about this thing so freely and and admitting that these are things that people do, it's so encouraging to me. And I love this chapter so much, so much. Yeah. Taylor feels herself reaching for her own figurative mask, in her case, reaching for the comfort of her bugs. But she's trying to avoid doing that. And she's trying to avoid becoming that person. Yeah, she's cognizant of the things that she does, the things that we've been pointing out from the beginning. She's suddenly aware that she's doing them. And this is a a different kind of self-awareness to these things than we've seen before. We've seen in the past she gets like brief glimpses of the truth of her behavior. And then she like immediately moves past it and shoves it back in that compartment, puts that mask back on. But this feels like true self-awareness and true realization. Yep, yep. Um, and and here we finally get a moment that dovetails really well with this talk of masks because uh, Sophia says, "Big bad weaver, that's what you go by now, isn't it?" I prefer Taylor. So so there it is. Taylor has come full circle. She's not skitter. She's not weaver. She's embraced who she is. Yes, yes, I, I am. I am so happy about this moment. And and the thing about this, Matt, the thing, the reason this works so well is because we we spent so much time with Jessica Yamada talking about names and talking about who you identify as and and how your cape name dehumanized you and how she preferred to call people by their real names. So, like, this is Taylor choosing. This is Taylor choosing to not be identified by her power, to not be identified by her cape name, but to be, choose to be Taylor. And as Willem Dafoe once said, you are who you choose to be. So wise, wise man. Thanks, Willem. Yeah. It's Sophia. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man. Green, Green Goblin. Best, best, uh, best superhero film. Uh, other than Thor Ragnarok. Okay. Let's calm okay. down. All let's right. calm down. So Sophia offhandedly talks about taking credit and insinuates that Taylor became what she became because of Sophia's lessons yeah and i love taylor's reaction to it too like she says the mental gymnastics she must have made to to do that i mean like yeah she absolutely did do some mental gymnastics to make that kind of uh um mental leap but like it's like sophia is almost like talking her way into some kind of weird justification for the choices she's made or something yeah i think what's i think what's going on here is that that Taylor's budding self-awareness is making her be like, wait a minute, <laughs> that, that's my shtick. <laughs> you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. So she actually admits that she was more angry that, that Taylor had a dad to attend the school suspension hearing than she was about anything else in that situation back in the day. Uh, yet she acts like she doesn't care that her family is probably dead. Similarly, she gets no reaction when Taylor mentions half a billion people dead already. Yeah, and this is continuing our trend of 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 masks and Sophia's mask and what is Sophia and what is Shadowstalker and is there a difference? And yeah. what, where is that difference? How does that right. look? Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to get to that, I think. So Sophia suggests that fighting Scion is pointless. He's stronger. And in, in her... In her cosmology, I suppose he's the predator to, to basically everyone else is the prey. She thinks that people should run and scatter to different dimensions, hide like cockroaches. Taylor admits to herself that she sees the logic and also guesses that she's getting an insight into Sophia's way of thinking here. Maybe a glimpse of how her passenger has affected her. 
yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense for someone who can turn into a literal shadow would want to stick to the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Like her, her power, she uses it very offensively quite a lot, but usually against people who she can sort of like get the drop on and defeat easily. Right. But it like, it's a power that very much lends itself to escaping actually and, and, and running and hiding. So. Yeah. Taylor pursues the point. Why did Sophia act superior if she has meant, if she has this mentality that seems to be more about hiding? Sophia says it's because she is superior most of the time. Anyway, she acts like the predator until there's a bigger predator around. And then she instantly shifts to being prey, um, basically putting herself in her place. Yeah. It's funny. We've been like the Sophia predator stuff has been talked about and discussed and, and her, her whole life philosophy has been, brought up multiple times throughout the book um and in most in most stories and most narrative like all that predator means when you call someone a predator is the strong one that goes and does all the hunting and preys on the weak but when you actually think about like what a predator in nature is they hide constantly they hide until they expend the least amount of energy to take down a thing that they know they can kill, and then they run away as soon as something bigger and better comes along. And that is what a predator does. They will not fight if they don't have to. They will not fight unless they think they can win. And that's Sophia. That is absolutely her. And you don't think about that when you first hear about the about the, the predator label. Yeah, no, I really like that. That's completely true. Yeah, and there's this, there's this moment here... Um, where, uh, like, Taylor's talking about, she says it was a pretty important moment, the most important moment, but I wasn't in the right place, wasn't in contact with the right people. More than anything, I wasn't asking the right questions. And this has to relate to, uh, Taylor accuses Sophia of arrogance um, in, in this mentality, and Sophia counters that, oh, you're arrogant too. And she admits that she was in, in, a, in a certain moment. And I was curious, what, what moment do you think she's talking about here specifically? I, I, my first thought was that she's thinking about basically the moments leading up to Jack being foamed and then, and then telling Scion to go on a killing spree. Um, because she kind of had her, she was kind of in a rut in terms of how she approaches problems and how she, how, how she commands people. And, and I suppose you could say that it was a little bit arrogant of her because she, she put herself in this commanding position and, and ultimately, it was actually Golem who, who kind of came up with the solution. And I think it's really cool that we were in Golem's head for that rather than Taylor's, because it's showing you, you know, it's showing you that you have to think differently than Taylor thinks. This is not even a, you, you almost suspect this isn't a solution that Taylor could have come up with, um, and especially not thinking the way she was thinking back then. She was, she was not in the right place. She wasn't in contact with the right people, um, and she wasn't asking the right questions, which is what golem was doing yeah i think you're right um i I interpret it as a little broader than that specific interaction i i thought of it as her approach to this the the end of the world thing in general um that she decided that the way the way to stop this thing from happening the way to victory is her one certain path of violence of going on the offensive and attack 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 until you win and she never stopped to think about it. She never stopped to ask questions on what this actually looks like. And, and so that, that was my interpretation, but I think those kind of fit into each other a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're overlapping in the Venn diagram. I think that's fair. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Taylor pushes back, saying that being arrogant only led her to make critical mistakes, uh, like, like we just discussed. Sophia derides her, adding that Taylor has come so far only by copying her. And Taylor thinks, I, I'd admitted to taking lessons from Bakada, from Jack. I'd picked up some of Purity's protectiveness, only I'd turned it toward my territory. I learned from Coil, from Accord, and yet Sophia, saying this, nettled me. So I think Taylor is mainly... Um, this is mainly because the idea that Taylor is copying Sophia is is too convenient. It it lets Sophia uh, keep her her worldview. Yeah, and I think on the one hand, I I absolutely see that. I love that Sophia basically says, "Oh yeah, you started jogging, right? Well, well, I'm on track." And it like it makes a logical sense when you think about it that way. But I, I don't think Taylor ever consciously set out to to imitate Sophia. And she is absolutely trying to connect dots that don't really have a direct line through them to to hold up her worldview. But but Taylor did trigger because of Sophia. I mean, there is cause and effect there. Yeah, right. But basically, the problem the problem that I think Taylor is is pointing out is that um, Sophia is using this to justify continuing to hold on to her worldview. Right. Um. And then that's kind of what that's kind of what Taylor wants to address specifically. Yeah, well, because Taylor's in this moment of of realizing that that's what she's been doing and allowing her worldview to change as she uh, like runs away from that kind of compartmentalization, that justification type stuff. So right. she's she Sophia here is a stand in for Taylor working through her own internal sense of identity. Um, and it, that's why I think this works so well because we're learning about Sophia, but at the same time we're using Sophia's re- statements and Taylor's reaction to them to show Taylor's shift and, and exploration of herself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So at this point, Taylor reveals why she's here. The imprisoned capes are being let out on the basis of having a trusted good guy cape vouch for them. And it was agreed that Taylor would have the chance to vouch for Sophia. Sophia, for her part, is obviously disappointed on hearing this news because she expects Taylor won't let her out. Yeah, we see behind that mask for a fraction of a second, right? Um, like she, she sees that that disappointment comes out. And I think, again, Taylor's trying to parse an emotion that she's not sure what it is. And she goes, disdain, disappointment, as if those are the, the only two options that there could be. Yeah, that's funny. Sophia insists that Taylor and she are the same. They're both vicious when they need to be, and they destroy their enemies. Taylor agrees, but tells her that that's a shitty way to live. I love it. (laughs) And that's what I was talking about before. We sit here in our chairs and we judge the morality of Taylor's actions. Yes, this was justified. No, this was not justified. Bicker, fight about the existential morality of that kind of stuff. But what about that human factor? What What does it do to you as a human being? If if existing in this world, if making those choices turns you into a person you don't recognize and a person you don't want to be, is it worth it? And I think that's what Worm is asking us. I think that's what it's discussing. It's not the armchair morality of right or wrong. These things are relative. It's how does that transform you and and mold you into a, a different person and possibly a person that you don't want to be? Yeah, I would even go so far as to say that Worm is relatively disinterested in objective questions of right or wrong and much more interested in the psychological and human effects of having to make hard choices. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. 
So Taylor is finally called in to help with the assault on Sion, so she gets up to leave, giving Sophia one last chance to convince her. She sees the tension in Sophia's body and realizes that she's afraid, and she compares the insight to what it must be like for Rachel seeing into a kindred spirit. Yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll get this in a second here, but I think what we're seeing, seeing here is a bully, one of Taylor's original bullies, and Taylor is growing to understand her, to feel for her. Um, I don't think Taylor at the beginning of the book would be able to do this. You know, t- we, we talked about a lot. Taylor was very much, once you are labeled a bully, um, I don't have time to understand you anymore. I just want to beat you. I want to stop you. And we're seeing that go away a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So here, Taylor rejects the impulse to be con- to, to, to be the kind of person that Sophia can compare herself to. She thinks, I can be Taylor without being weak. Keep the best parts of Skitter and Weaver. Yes, Matt, Matt, take the best parts, ditch the mask, be Taylor. Uh, I, this is, this is so awesome. This is so awesome. Yeah. And, and it comes such a great moment yeah. where she's, she's getting her catharsis and we're, we're getting our catharsis too. Yeah. So yeah, at this point, Sophia attacks her, phasing a chair through the wall to bunk Taylor's shin and it does no real damage and is purely a petty move. Uh, and Taylor responds to this by telling her that she can go free if she promises not to hurt Taylor or anyone else. I felt okay with this decision. Comfortable. It wasn't a mask I was wearing, so strong and might as well have been real. No, it was something simpler. I'm not scared of her anymore. So again, we have Taylor's bully, one of the three bullies responsible for her original trauma, her primary motivational factor throughout this entire story. And suddenly, Taylor kind of realizes that she's moved past it. I'm not scared of her anymore. I'm not ruled by this original trauma anymore. This life-defining event has lost its sway over me in a little bit, in a little way. And I'm me. I'm Taylor. No more masks no more other identities. I'm me. And that's yeah. enormous. That's so yeah. huge. Yeah, it's such a great moment to be to be heading into this part of the story with because she has been absolutely haunted by this this trauma for the whole story up to now. And and, and you could argue that that yes, yeah, she's not afraid of Sophia anymore, but the, the changes to her personality that were wrought by this bullying campaign are pretty deeply ingrained. And yeah. you know, the whole the whole Taylor's toolbox approach I don't know if that's completely due to the bullying, but it's certainly the degree to which she's developed it was due to this this thing where she's just constantly and you know feeling like she's being put in danger and, and having to think that way. So. Right, and I think I think it's no accident that in the middle of all this Taylor identity crisis and Taylor finding herself, we have Bonesaw and Riley and this realization that. Riley's redemption, Riley's change has barely even started and how long of a process it is. So yes, we have Taylor in this moment deciding to be something else, deciding to make the choice to change and to back away from the person she was becoming. But it's that doesn't mean it's done. That doesn't mean she's there. It's a long process and she's got a long way to go. So yes, I'm, I'm wonderfully happy in this moment and I'm happy for her. Um, but there's there's more there's like it that doesn't mean she's like out of out of the water like out of trouble yet she's like it could still go bad yep yep 
So yeah, she and Sophia take diff- different doorways to the mountainside where the capes are gathered, awaiting the release of the birdcage inmates. Rachel brings Taylor a coat. So remember when Taylor made Rachel a coat? And now we're just going full circle? Yeah, uh, it's it's beautiful. I'm also <laughs> noticing I'm also noticing I, I, I don't think I I don't think I noticed this at the time, but like it makes a specific mention, the text makes a specific mention of, of Shadow Soccer being being cold. Yeah. And just just in her prison sweats, nobody there to bring her a sweater. Nobody nobody bringing her anything nice and cozy and, and making her feel good. Although Weld does kind of acknowledge her existence briefly. Yeah, because those masks, Matt, they leave you alone. Yeah, like that's one of the that's one of the things. You put up those masks, you end up alone. Yeah. So yeah, we get up to speed on all of our main characters. Tattletail and Defiant are working together. Gru is keeping an eye on Bonesaw. Yeah, yeah. Here's a guy who has definitely not gotten past his trauma. Though, can you really blame him when it's when it's Bonesaw? Jesus. Yeah, right. Uh, he's he's probably just like, why are they, why are they trusting her? <laughs> this is a nightmare. This is an actual nightmare. Um, yeah. So, so we have Imp Imp talking uh, talking about everything I'm going to miss. Imp said, "I'm starting to. Uh, I'm trying to start out uh, from the outer edges and work my way towards the biggest stuff. Work out my courage to say, you know." I miss him too, Imp. <laughs> I'm assuming she's going to eventually say Regent there. She's eventually going to get to how much she misses Regent. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's interesting. I wasn't thinking that. I thought that her, I thought that like her family was dead or something, but I don't know. I don't yeah. Remember. I mean, she, she says that it's the, the kids that Regent's oh, brothers yeah. and sisters specifically, but I think she's eventually working her way to admitting how much she misses him. Um, yeah. but this, this moment, I want, I want to stop and talk about this moment as, as full as this episode is, but we have Taylor sitting down, leaning against bastard as, as she sits next to, next to Rachel, looking out over the edge of a cliff. And this is the most beautiful and haunting image I've seen in this book so far. Cause, cause we have our character here. She's removed her mask. She's taken down her compartment. She's accepted the things that she's done, agreed that she's messed up. And now she sits here ready to fight for the world once again. And still, she's right next to the ledge. And every breath of bastard moves her closer and further away. She's teetering on the edge. And I'm so proud of Taylor in these moments. But this imagery tells me, tells us that it's not over yet. Like we said, it's not, it's, it's Taylor, like, she's, she's teetering right here. And we do it in this fun fascinating interesting way of showing that of of exploring that and it's i love it yeah that's i i I admit i did not read that into this bit but uh it's yeah it it definitely even if even if i didn't parse it on the on the metaphorical level i definitely it made me nervous i was like why just get away from the ledge taylor (laughs) no need to do that to me she's trying she's trying to get away from the ledge but it's a long process matt Okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, then it's Rachel's turn. I don't have a lot, Rachel said, breaking the silence. Haven't ever had much more than I could take with me if I left home. Had money, but it was just a number I couldn't really follow on a computer I didn't have. You have something now, I said. She bobbed her head in a motion that was almost too slow to be a nod. Yep. And then a bit later, don't want to lose it, Rachel said any of it yeah i think i actually might have just cried at this moment the first time i read it it's it's beautiful it's like 
this is definitely like we're about to go full tilt into action and death and, and horrible things. And this, I, I, I love everything about this. I love the journey that Rachel has gone on up until this point that she's gotten here. We, we've talked so much about Taylor's identity and, and the realization that she's having right now. But look at Rachel. Look at how far she has come. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the all the undersiders are getting big moments here because uh, you know, Tattletail got to give her big long-awaited info dump that she's just been holding up for the whole story. Uh Rachel gets this moment of of saying, "Yeah, you know, I I have I have my people now and and uh and I I don't just want to I'm not just angry. I don't just want to run. I I want to protect what I have." And you have you have Taylor becoming Taylor. Um and you even have Imp kind of you know, she's always like fairly mature, actually, or has been for a while. But uh, just having her her little moment here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this makes Taylor this thing that Rachel says makes Taylor feel the loss of her dad, the loss of her mission, all the other losses, and she can't control her emotions anymore. So for once, she recognizes her emotions as just emotions, not passenger shenanigans, not impediments to her functioning, and. uh Rachel just hugs her and lets her cry. I love this so much. And there's something touched on here that I wanted to talk about for a little bit, because I think for, for a while now we've been talking about the passengers, the, the shards as we now know them and how, you know, we think they're secretly controlling emotions. And I bought into this. I bought into this a lot because I think Taylor bought into this. I think Taylor believed it. And on some level it is true. Like we've seen that the shards, with with Sion are, are are there to encourage and incite conflict and violence to learn, but I think I I let myself get pulled pulled into it a little too much. I think I let myself get pulled into another Taylor rationalization, another justification. You know, it's not me. It's just my my passenger. It, it wasn't what I was feeling. It wasn't what I was doing. Not not me. But that's kind of a cop out, and it's another. Like I said, it's another way for Taylor to compartmentalize and dismiss her actions. And so I love here that she just lets go. And she recognizes that this emotion, this crying, this heartache, this loss and pain, that's just her. And that's, it's terrifying. She even says it. She even says, fuck, I wasn't sure I wanted this to be me and me alone. But it is you, Taylor. And the sooner you accept that it is you and this is you, the better off you will be. And I think that just makes the moment so much better and and I love that I love that I was kind of taken for a ride a little bit like we 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 read closely into the stuff and I, I I love that I realized I bought too much into something that Taylor was buying into as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all that's all very, very accurate. Um, we we get this uh, we next get this moment where imp I'm imp started ready. Someone in the crowd called out interrupting her. So. I thought that was so crushing right there because like we just said, everyone is kind of getting their big undersider moment and imp the, the girl who nobody pays attention to and who everyone forgets is there. It's like, she's starting, she's starting to act to, to get her, her big moment. And then she's interrupted and everyone forgets. That she I was know. Talking. I wanted her to get it so bad. I really did. And I'm sad that she didn't. That's, but it's it's fitting, right? It's like it's just just the way it's just the way people are around poor imp. Yep. Yep. Um 
so here the portals of the birdcage begin to open and um it's a very long list and i'm, I'm just going to very briefly breeze over um there's, there's a whole bunch of them we, we see the cell block leaders we have gavel the, the ruthless vigilante uh, lustrum the celebrity feminist icon uh, crane the harmonious who would kidnap cape kids acid bath who's just kind of a bad guy string theory who makes weapons lab rat who makes formulas that turn people into monsters galvanate who can spread durability black kaze a woman who prowled the ruins of uh, kyushu killing survivors ingenue who has driven all of her boyfriends crazy um and then we see her choose chevalier uh, marquis who greets lady photon accepting her slap in the face teacher um who we now are we learn a little bit more uh, perhaps successful international orchestrator of high profile assassinations and uh glastig uh who killed everybody who came against her and ultimately surrendered and then we see lung and then panacea sporting some sweet prison tats uh, a son a heart with a sword and brandish hugs her but doesn't get much response yeah yeah so i mean i think the important part of this is that they're not just letting uh the unfairly imprisoned people out i mean there are definitely some of these guys that were thrown in there because they did some absolutely terrible things um and but were desperate and we're letting them out because we need them yeah so they are released and yeah I, I love seeing panacea here i love seeing the change in her the tattoos like we we saw that obviously that started with one tattoo and like anyone who gets tattoos they get addicted to it and spread <laughs> a little bit but yeah, yeah this is this is a uh, intense lots of new yeah. people and they're all scary mm -hmm. and then we move right on into 27.4 and it's time to embark for the fight the non-essential personnel um, start draining away, including Rachel and Naisha, because they can't really contribute anything. Brian starts to leave, but Taylor stops him. You're not useless. I get it if you don't have the courage, but your power, there's potential. Even if it doesn't work, that tells us a lot. Oh, that's real nice, Taylor. I get it if you're a scaredy little girly man, guy who has emotional uh, masculinity issues. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that she's even aware that she just, like, just intentionally like manipulated the fuck out of him by poking him exactly where he's most vulnerable. Um, like she doesn't internally doesn't comment on it at all. She just kind of does it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I like to think she's better than that. But <laughs> I, do, I want her to be, but yeah. I mean, she hits him right where he's weak and gets him yeah. to stay. I don't, I don't know if she recognizes the degree to which he's, has this fragile masculinity thing going on. Yeah, that, that's true. So, um, yeah. So Perrion leaves, but Foyle stays. Sophia slinks away. I love that word being used here. And Taylor uses swarm voice to say, I'll talk to you later before Sophia can disappear. <laughs> Taylor getting the last in last word in via scary swarm whisper is like the most Taylor thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> And it, and it really wonderful. shows she's, she's not scared of her at all. She's just right. like, yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> so Chevalier gives everyone the skinny on the battle plan. The aim is to see if there are any powers or weapons that can actually hurt Scion. So just like a, a skirmish, right? Nothing, nothing bad's going to happen. Yeah. Just, just a test. So String Theory and Lab Rat ask for equipment to get their Tinker Mojo flowing. Both Tinkers have years of thinking built up and are eager to get to work. 
prepared to make something useful even in 45 minutes. String theory is given access to a fusion reactor. Reactor. Labrat is given access to an animal shelter. I'm sure glad they waited until after Rachel left to to say that one. <laughs> Good point there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, Taylor approaches Glastigwenye. They share a fire made by one of the Fairy Queen's ghost servants, a projection that shares the, that original cape's powers and a smoothed over and stylized facsimile of its appearance. And what a great way to naturally fall back into that, that theme of the arc, identity. Uh, the, the ghosts or, or shards that Glastig takes are not a real interpretation of people are. Like it says, the edges have been slew, smoothed over. Specifically, the line between costume and flesh was impossible to discern. As if these ghosts represent that mask that we wear fully taking over that identity. And that's absolutely what Taylor thinks in this moment as she wonders what, what her ghost would look like if Glastig claimed her. Would it be Weaver? Would it be Skitter? Would it be a combination? And that's basically Taylor declaring who am I and who will I be remembered as after I'm gone? It's it's so smart to do it this way. Like it just everything just kind of comes together. Oh, interesting. So there's even perhaps an inkling of legacy here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we may see another theme of legacy in a little bit. <laughs> so Glastonwenye says that she considers she considers them both to be queens, and that there are others that stand shoulder to shoulder with them: the champion, the high priest, the observer, the shaper, the domain keeper. Is that said? You say domain? I don't know how to say that word either. Whatever. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, don't, I honestly <laughs> don't know. We'll we'll just uh, skip that one. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want me to speculate? Spice. Yeah, you go okay. for it. Well, yeah. the high priest is Eidolon. That's very obvious. Um, she specifically thinks about Labyrinth and uh, Panacea. So I'm guessing those two could, like, the sh... I don't know. So what is... Is that Dementsinis? <laughs> what is that? I don't even know what that I, word means, to be honest with you. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, even though it's probably gonna be wrong, and people are gonna correct me for the next 15 years. Okay, but but I think it basically means like um, guardian of a region, oh. uh, of, of an area. Huh. Um, I guess I guess that could be labyrinth. I guess like shape like shaper could be panacea. I don't know what who the champion would be um the observer could either be dinah or the wasn't there a cauldron cape who could see into all different dimensions that could be the observer yeah there's a Um, clairvoyant yeah 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 Uh, the champion could be contessa i guess i that's my guess i don't i don't know okay cool so taylor points out the possible conflict of interest here She's trying to figure out if Glastigwenye is going to actually be on the side of the humans against Sion. And the Fairy Queen reassures her that they have all their parts to play and that she will play her own part, which is not very reassuring, actually. Yeah, this is why nobody likes fairies, because they just don't (laughs) give straight answers. It's true. She also talks about her take on the two courts, one of them being messed up. Yeah, I think this is the only moment I really absolutely understood <laughs> from all this, that court one is obviously Scion, the, the warrior entity. Court two is the dead uh, thinker entity. Yeah, you know, don't be too hard on yourself because there are parts of the Eidolon interlude that I 
only now understand <laughs> on, on, on like on like this read through this last week. I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. OK, good. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah, there's a lot of cryptic stuff in here that I'm not even going to go into too much detail on because it took me like six read throughs to understand even in retrospect. So talking about it too much is impossible without spoiling on some level. Yeah, uh, my best guess for what I've been able to parse so far that that the play that Glastig is participating in is the cycle of the entity, right? And her her role in her, her role in that performance is to recollect shards from those who have died. Um, perhaps the shard that she got was had that at the end of the cycle has the role to collect all the shards and reassimilate all of them together at the end of the cycle. Um, the rest of it. I really just have to like put it in my brain hole and save it because <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know. I will keep the stuff in my head. Um, but I think, I think the most important part here as we know it now is, is once again, metaphorical identity purpose. These are things that Taylor in this moment is trying to get a handle on. And Glastig is suggesting that she has an identity. She has a role and a purpose. Um, but like the ghosts, like the collected shards that she has, Glastig's role would have her play one in which her passenger and her own personal identity either merged or one is more important than the other. One which Taylor isn't important. One which she is queen administrator. And I don't think Taylor wants that right now. So she kind of mentally pushes back against that idea. Yeah. Okay. That that all parses to me. So finally, Glastig Winnie uses her power to create her badass costume um so like she had this you know basically prison clothes and now she's like a ethereal god creature uh so speaking of of costumes taylor orders a door to the chicago protectorate hq and she looks over all of her costumes wondering what her ghost would look like if Glastig Winnier claimed her what color what weapons which taylor would it choose for herself she chooses the black suit she's preparing for the toughest challenge so she wants that edge that, that that was associated with Skitter, white armor panels and white lenses to balance it out. And then her flight pack, a gun, a taser, and her pepper spray. I love this so much. I love it so much. She she wonders what Ghost Taylor would look like, and wondering what she would be. But she is Taylor now. She is not Weaver. She is not Skitter. And for the time being, she can choose. She can make that choice. She can choose who she wants to be. So she chooses. She chooses some of Skitter, some of Weaver. She collects the, the her every, every tool that she's gotten throughout the course of this thing. It started with the pepper spray and the taser, and then she got the gun, and then she got the flight pack. She chooses all these things to become something different, something unique, something tailored. And it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I love it. So she arrives at the oil platform where the capes are staging. So do you think this is the same platform that the Triumvirate members met on uh, with the Cauldron members all those million words ago? Uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. I, I, you're probably right, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure now. So anyway, um, 80 capes on the platform. Uh, Lab Rat distributes the devices that he was able to make. Um, 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 we have some people not too excited about the idea of using them based on what his power is, but yeah. uh, they, they usually, they mostly all put them on anyway. And then Galvanate walks around distributing durability to various people. Taylor mentions that she doesn't like locations like this because there's nowhere to escape to. 
Chevalier you're apparently unfamiliar with rooftop battles dismisses <laughs> her concerns. Yeah, and I think this is the part of the chapter where we start to really push hard on that foreshadowing that things are going to go bad. I mean, I don't think anyone reading this ever really expected it to go well, but we're getting all of the signs. Taylor's feeling trapped on the roof. Other people are, are casually dismissing her. We got Dennis, you know, casually talking about cutting his arm off. <laughs> um, some pretty heavy, ominous foreshadowing here. Yeah, right. So Defiant and Tattletail coordinate the attack. Doormaker portals are opened with precise timing to enable Chevalier to fire an ingenue-powered super shot at Scion. Next, they send in a group including Clockblocker with a Chuckles clone. Yeah, and I, I forgot that we still have clones of the Slaughterhouse a lot running around <laughs> under cauldron control now. That's not at all creepy and disturbing. Yeah. I guess and, desperate uh, times. Uh, now imagining these like hero capes standing there and there's like a vibrating salivating chuckles clone standing next to them. Hey, hey, hey man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So when Glastig Winye moves off with the triumvirate, Taylor mentions to Tattletale that she isn't fully trustworthy. Yeah, and we talk about cause and effect a lot in this arc, and I, and I so it makes me wonder what the long term effect of this little beat is. Did did the triumvirate handle the situation differently because of this? Did it cause Idolan to to hesitate or not go all in at a crucial time? Um, I guess we'll we'll never fully know, but I can't help but think about it. Yeah. Um, Gru looked over his shoulder at me, then saluted. I felt a lump in my throat. I wanted to be Taylor here, but there was a limit to how far I could go with that. I saluted him back. So I just pulled this out because I wanted to give you the opportunity to replicate your Twitter, your, <laughs> your, your, your live read Twitter reaction here. Yeah, so this is quite possibly the most telegraphed, this is the last time you will see him moment in the story so far. Um, Gru's going to die. Uh, Gru's absolutely going to die. And you know what? I, I'm, I'm okay with this moment. I've been guessing that Gru is going to die for a, a while now. I like him a lot, but I think at this point in the story, his death serves better as a narrative purpose than his continued life does, which I guess is pretty, pretty cold blooded, but he's a fictional character. So I'm okay with it. Um, also Taylor kind of wants to bang him right there on the oil platform, but yeah. she, she, she can't. So that's, that's what Taylor would do. Yeah, yeah. There was a limit, you know? Yeah. No, but the, I mean, like, like, like this is very telegraphed. I think it, again, I think it's okay that it's telegraphed. Um, I think it's okay that, we get this this moment that seems to admit like like a final salute as he walks into a portal that's like oh god oh god yeah very very interesting scott very interesting um it turns out Gru's power doesn't work on scion at all apparently most most of Clockblocker's group gets hurt or killed uh, in their attack yeah string theory manages to knock scion up into the sky apparently out of the atmosphere hooray and uh brief brief flavor on that the firmament driver defiant explained over the earbuds at the time of her arrest string theory was threatening to use her firmament firmament driver to knock our moon out of orbit and we didn't hear about this because morale defiant replied as if that was explanation enough (laughs) i like that in the midst of this battle that's going terribly it's this really timely beat about like how much of the chaos of the planet was kept hidden from the general populace, like how yeah. how bad it really was that people just didn't know about it. Yeah, and, even the, even the capestone, and they yeah. usually know all the all the dirt. Yeah, yeah, and I, this I mean this is something that I think happens 
in real life too, right? Like when acts are planned against our country, when terrorist acts are planned against any country, you usually only find out about the ones that are successful. <laughs> the ones that are failed or are, are stopped are usually kept secret um, unless they absolutely has, have to be. So it makes you wonder how much really awful stuff has gotten really close to happening that we just don't know about. Yeah, yeah. So as the sixth group prepares to attack, they lose track of Sion, and suddenly he's above them, looking down at them. Now I sense bloodlust, not anger, nothing so germane. That's that's terrifying. Yeah, especially the part where he just looks down at them and just waits for them to notice him. Yeah, because it it does. He's so cavalier. Like he does. It doesn't matter. Like yeah, he doesn't have right. to sneak attack them. Right. Taylor asks Tattletale for help and tries to directly talk to Cauldron through her clairvoyant, uh, th- through through their clairvoyant, uh, when Tattletale says she can't help. Yeah, and there's a weird pause here when she talks to Lisa that makes me feel uncomfortable. We know Lisa has lied in the past. I, I don't know if that's what's happening here, but there there was a very, like, it could be I'm reading too much into it, and the pause was literally just, you asked me, I turned and asked Cauldron, they said no. But I don't know, it just seemed very, like, Interesting that we set that up. I, I have no idea what that means. I'm not making a speculation. I just it jumped out at me. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't, re- I don't remember if I parsed that or not, but that's interesting to point out. Uh, yeah. So we have this where she says, uh, "If I was Skitter, I might have tried to sacrifice myself. If I was Weaver, I might have made peace with the fact that I needed to die so Cauldron could preserve their portals, maintain the fight for the greater good. I wasn't either. Not at my core." And and that, that's why she's that's why she continues to beg to to have the portals opened because yeah. she doesn't want to be either of those people. Yeah. But but alas, no portals open, and then Scion attacks. Yep. Here we go. We move right on to twenty seven dot five, where everything goes just fine. No, it's I, I call it twenty seven dot everything goes wrong. Holy shit. Oh, okay. That's probably more <laughs> accurate. Yeah, you're right. So Taylor starts running, but she's in the middle of the platform, and it doesn't look like she'll make it. She sees Labrat try to throw something over the edge, and she helps nudge it over. Lustrum uses her power, trying to reduce the power of Scion's blast, and she grows in turn. Yeah, and this entire chapter is filled with tiny victories that, like, momentarily make you happy, but then almost instantly switch back to, oh god, it doesn't matter at all, does it? And this is this is one of them. Right. Taylor makes it to the edge and jumps, falling, and she starts to feel herself disintegrate in a haze in, in in the golden haze of the blast her right hand is gone her body is being eaten away by the golden light and she's going to hit the water hard her legs are gone now her body is coming apart yeah and there's one point where she like feels the pull of her intestines coming out of her body and i don't know if you remember the first time you read this but i was like convinced we were going to do some kind of time manipulation thing or this was someone else's power and we were just seeing you just like you see what's going to happen 30 seconds into the future and then you snap back. Like, I did not think the events here were actually happening because it's like, holy shit, she's literally just dying. Yeah, yeah. I think I was, I, I definitely was expecting some form of shenanigans. I was just like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Where are we going to go with this? Right. It's almost pushing past the point of believability. Almost. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's basically, you know, it's it's hard to keep it's hard to keep escalating tension and making situations seem dire over and over and over and over again. 
Um, so at a certain point, you just get to the point where you have to dissolve half of your character's body. <laughs> so, it's yeah. Taught in every writing class. <laughs> right. Yeah. If there's a name for it. I forget what it's called, though. <laughs> um, yeah. So she begs her passenger for help. Uh, does it respond or does she correct the situation? What's the difference? She focuses only on her bugs, abandoning her body entirely and pulses her flight pack to control her descent. Yeah, I think that there's some really great questions. And we do see her reach out to her passenger and then immediately take control of the situation. So um, I think you can read it both ways simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, the, the part that's most interesting to me is she completely gives up on her human body and right. is just 100% bugs. And that's when she's able to actually solve the problem and not die when she hits the water. Right. Um, yeah, and I want to talk. I want to talk about about the prose here. The sentence fragments, the desperate tense way way it's written, even more so than all the previous life or death fights, because she's she's dying really fast here, and and it's I think that's communicated by how there's um, it's like many many like uh, paragraphs that are just one sentence. M- many of the sentences are just fragments. Um, it's it's not at all like her normal way of narrating when she's in a in a fight. Yeah, yeah, and I think it it's cool because once again you put sentences, paragraphs that are one word, you kind of tend to devour them as a reader, and so it it, it increases the pace a little bit. You you kind of bull rush through it, but I also like we were just talking about did her passenger take over? Like what happened? And the most interesting part of this to me was there were moments in all these one word answers that kind of reminded me of how the entities talked. Like she's like focus propulsion sinking stopped these one word descriptive sentences that are very much in, in the vein of the way the two entities communicated to each other. And again, that's probably just got reading way too much into stuff so he can come up with something to say about this. But, (laughs) but it jumped out at me on second examination. Well, I like that a lot because that that makes it so that maybe like the stylistic change in the prose isn't just like oh she's under a lot of stress it's it's maybe this is the passenger leaking in a little bit it's, yeah that's yeah, really interesting yeah I like that so even in this dire straits she thinks about her tools the only one that could help her would be her gun to end her suffering but she won't take that route she's not ready to die and she thinks back to her aborted not really suicide attempt over Brockton Bay Gimmel which we were talking about yeah, and she says, damn it all, I wanted to fight. And this is quintessential Taylor. She's she's lying in the middle of the ocean. She's literally chopped in half. Her intestines are floating away from her body right now. And even then, she cannot give up, will not give up. She wants to fight. And and, and we can we can have an argument about that want to fight if that's if that's her shard's desire for conflict or not. And I'm sure on some level that is in there, but it's also just who Taylor is. Yeah, I think you're right. So she notices that with her one remaining limb that the lab rat device is trying to inject her with something, um, but she can't. Beca- it can't because it's uh, it's set over her spider silk. So she uses her bugs to painstakingly remove it from her wrist and bring it up to the one part of her body with skin showing vanity. I'd held on to my long hair, wore a costume that let my hair free. When I'd been filled with self-loathing, when I was so focused on the individual imperfections and the overall ugliness of my features, 
In the midst of the bullying campaign that had defined my early teen years, I'd still liked my hair. The skin was exposed there. No costume to get in the way. <laughs> so, I mean, not only does this, this match the fact that she's like, has a bunch more self-awareness, but I think it's funny that she calls liking one of the features of her body as vanity. <laughs> like that's just called self-confidence. Yeah. Um, it's just so, it's so Taylor. Yeah. But I mean, I think the coolest part of, of this is that she's, she's re-embracing this, this idea of being Taylor. And the thing is yeah. the the hair was always Taylor. The costume was always Skitter or right. Weaver, but the, the hair was always Taylor. And the thing that keeps her from just being dead in like 15 seconds is that she had to concede this one little bit to Taylor that was always there and right. it's still there and that's what saves her. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. It's, it is it is being Taylor that saves her here. Yeah. Yeah. And then Taylor turns into some kind of creature. The transformation <laughs> heals her and it fights off the corrosive effects of the golden light. Uh, she climbs up to the wreckage of the oil rig and she's got claws and several pointed legs and she can climb pretty well. At no point does Taylor think, oh, I'm a bug. <laughs> That's like the first thing I thought of, too. It's like she literally turned into a bug. And then, of course, my head's like, is this permanent? Is this just <laughs> going to is Taylor just going to be a bug girl now? Are we reading Metamorphosis? <laughs> um, it's it's just this really strange moment. And it's again, it's again, I'm just like, is this really happening? Like, is this really happening? Yeah, no, it's it's all. <laughs> I dare say this is a rather Kafkaesque part of the story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. So she's uh she's starting to get angry, starting to have some emotions, um, and she determines that a lot of these these emotions are coming from the transformation state in some way, and she kind of tries to get control of herself, but also. Kind of not, because she thinks, but I liked being emotional, liked coming out of my shell, acting. Some of my finer moments had been when I was doing just that. Yeah, and of course, like, that's that's all about the masks and how Golem said that the heroes, like, buttoned up their emotions and never let them show. Um, and now she's recognizing that that emotions are important and, and yeah. allowing yourself to feel things is important. Yeah, the mask does her a disservice. So up on top of the ruins of the platform, most of the remaining capes are the irregulars, it seems like. She tells Weld that lab rats boxes can help the wounded. In the sky, Glastigwenye and Idolin are throwing an amazing show of force. Yeah, it's kind of fitting that Taylor, having transformed into a monster, finds only the monsters left, right? Yeah. And, but it, and we do find out in this moment that the transformation is just temporary. No Kafka Taylor, I guess. Yeah. Bummer. So, yeah, she orders Weld to retreat, uh, but he refuses, planning to stay himself and help others. The Irregulars argue. Yeah, and then here Taylor sees it. She sees Weld's mask, and she sees the cracks in it a little bit. Um, and even the Irregulars have it, that this, this, this mask to hide our identity, to hide who we are, to, to present as something else. It's all over this arc. It's everywhere, man. And, and, and again... It, the fact that Taylor can see it, that she can identify it, not just in herself, but in others, is is just a huge acknowledgement of the growth that she's made. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This, yeah, I, I like that we're we're hitting that that uh, that realization from multiple angles, and it's kind of affecting her thinking a lot. Yeah. So Glastigwenye uh, uses her cape duplicator to make a bunch of 
gray boys up in the sky. <laughs> um, uh, but at best, they mildly slow, <coughs> slow Scion down. The Triumvirate capes take the opportunity to rescue some capes from the water. Lower down the capes... Um, sorry, they, they begin to lower down the capes on the platform with Taylor's silk cords, starting with Sveta. Uh, she's sealed inside her ball and lowered down. Yeah, and we see in this moment that Sveta almost loses control again. Almost. She kind of lashes out and almost grabs Taylor with the tentacle, but stopped. And it's been a while since we've seen her, like we talked about. And it's just incredible how far she's come. And it's and we get a lot of hints here that it's that it's because of Weld. I love the, the, the quick interaction here where, where Weld says, be brave, Sveta. And she says, I just tell myself I need to act like you. And it's this beautiful, this beautiful little moment here. Yeah, it's, it is lovely. It's lovely to see that she's, you know, I, I don't know if I expected to see this character again after she, you know, after we saw her in the asylum. But uh, yeah, it's wonderful that we do. And it's wonderful that that she's found this uh, connection with Weld, who we also we, we love him, too. Yeah. But as as the irregulars flee the scene here, we get the truth from Weld. He's not staying because he's brave. It's actually the opposite. He's staying because he's scared because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And that unknown terrifies him his mask too has cracked and all that he has left is his fear so he'll stay and die here because at least that's known at least he knows what that is and i think that's such like a wonderful echo back to taylor's near suicide that we talked about um she she was lost confused and terrified and unsure of where to go and what happens next and taylor flies in the middle of nowhere and chooses to stay there because she can't bear bear to deal with what happens next and and in that moment, her friend arrives and tells her that they got to fight. And Taylor tries to do the same thing with Weld here. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting because she's got this, she's got the voice of kind of the, the rage in her coming from the mutation. But um, but I think that even if she were sober, she would probably be feeling something similar. Yeah. If not, yeah. if not as strongly. Um, and she's thinking, I want to hurt him. I want to prove this isn't hopeless, that we can do something. I don't want to lose to another bully. I'm done with surrendering to forces of nature, human nature or, or otherwise. <laughs> uh, what a complicated character Taylor is. Yeah. Like, again, we had this scene where she has this breakthrough with her former bully. And now she's talking about bullies again. I mean, again, I think this is showing that she's made progress, but she's she's not done yet. Like, she, yeah. the the the... the putting people into categories like bully and innocent is still something she does. And it's still something she's going to have to work through. Yeah. Um, she's not there yeah. yet. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's certainly not like not being afraid of, of Sophia anymore is going to make her be like, Oh, bullies are good now. It's yeah. like, no, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're still bad. And she has kind of a generalized vendetta against them when she sees them and she is yeah. on a hair trigger for seeing them. So, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, that's, a reflection of the trauma though it's it's not that like i don't think anyone would ever say bullies are good but just that yeah that it, it it is a trigger for her it is something that she sees and has to do something about because mm -hmm. she is ruled by it still and she's trying to move away from that but she's not not quite there yeah yeah so she, she tries to use her silk on scion's eyes and then she passes the other end to the thanda who can hold things in space relative to each other and this successfully renders Scion immobile, and then the big capes hit him hard while he's stuck like this. It doesn't do anything at all. Doesn't do anything, yeah. 
she creates a swarm decoy, which Scion doesn't react to, but he does react, however, when Taylor and Idolin start kind of like making duplicates and, and spreading out their forces. And it, it, it's almost like he's compelled to kill them at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. And if I were smart like Taylor, I would be forming a plan about how you can use this to defeat him. But I'm not. So I'm sure Taylor's thinking of something. Yeah. And I think she starts to fairly quickly. Um, at this point, the last thing when they uses well, one of her one of her spirits uh, to stop Scion in time. Uh, I can't I can't say it, Scott. Uh, it's Dennis. Fuck. Isn't this a, isn't this isn't this so sad? Like, oh, my God. Just to it's so it's so effective to be like, yeah, this this guy who you've been following this whole time and who, who you love. Um, he's, he, he died. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help in this moment, but think back to those conversations from a couple arcs ago, um, how, how beaten down by the world he was, how much he had give up and just assumed that we were going to destroy each other eventually. Anyway, I think the world killed clock blocker a while ago and, and Scion just kind of made it official here. And that's really, that's really devastating. Yeah. It's, it's so sad. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to more cheerful things. Oh wait. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So um, she then uh, lastly when he uses another cape to create a black hole, uh, which which uh, starts to suck Scion in when the time freezing wears off, and then Idolin kind of reverses this effect, which drives Scion hard into the water. Taylor then goes into the water and she starts to survey the krill population with some idea towards doing a duplicate based trick using krill, but her body starts coming apart before she can make much progress. Her legs fall off and she begins to drown. Classe hovers over her waiting for her to die so she can collect her shard. So Matt, <laughs> we've had some scary ass shit happen in this story. Um, we have people being literally taken apart. We had someone who can eternally torture you. We've had hopelessness and death on a massive scale. But for whatever reason, the image of Glastig hovering over Taylor, smiling greedily as she waits for her to die. That haunted me from the moment I read it and will not let up. I can see it and it's it just haunts me. I dream about it. Yeah. Are you also imagining it like viewed through the surface of the water? Yes. That's, yes. Yes. And, that, and she's got yeah. a big old toothy smile on her face, like gleeful. Uh, uh. Yeah. Yeah. It's good shit. Yeah. So before uh, she has a chance to do that, though, the doorway opens and Taylor flows through as she blacks out. Yeah. And as she goes, she kind of admits that they've lost, that any kind of resistance will splinter. Um, that, 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 you know, we, they, they like any, like the team, the group is done. Like so many people died, the rest in her, in her head, she just says they're going to give up and then it's over. And so we enter this interlude with basically no hope. And then somehow, somehow, Matt, we go down from there. Yep. But it is a pretty cool interlude. I'd say this is one of my favorites. It's, it's good. It's very good. 27 interlude. Idolin, finally. So Idolin and Glassic Wenye are pretty much the only two left, except for the few remaining capes dying below. 
We see his power from the inside for once. He can release powers and wait for others to take hold. But at best, he can hope for something along the lines of what he wants. He can't force it. And he's constantly weighing the strengths of the powers that he's holding, deciding if the new powers that are within his reach are worth letting go of the old ones for. So for now, he needs to he needs a flight in some form. Uh, so that takes up one of his slots. Yeah, I can't imagine how agonizing this much be must be. Like I, like when I'm listening to songs on a, the radio or something, and I come across a song that's pretty good, but then. You know, there could be a much better one next. So I, I always skip to the next song, Matt. I always yeah. skip to the next song. I can't help myself. How could you like, well, this power is pretty good, but that next one, that could be mm. that could be better. Yeah, that could that be would, really good. That would drive me insane. Yeah, that could be the one that fulfills me. <laughs> so, yeah, Glassing Winnie detects his predicament and she offers to, to provide him with, with flight. This requires that she trust him, which he's reluctant to do. He looks at her and thinks about how strong she is, wondering if she's already stronger than him. She's been getting stronger in prison while he's been getting weaker. Yeah, this is a, our first hint at how these two characters are kind of like foils of each other. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that more explicitly later, but we're, we're kind of laying the groundwork here. Yeah. He briefly wonders uh, if it would be better for him to die and let her take his power. Maybe she could put it to better use. Yeah, so many people willing or or allowing themselves to die in this arc, huh? First mm -hmm. Taylor, now Weld, now Idolan. Um, perhaps it's better to die than to just face the unknown without your mask to protect you. Of course, Idolan's mask is is a tad more literal than the other guys, but yeah, but it's still it's still there. Yeah. So he lets himself fall. And we flash back to a relatively recent meeting with the doctor where she refused to give him another booster shot. At first, he's angry. He argues that the boosters help, but she argues that cauldron resources are better spent elsewhere. He's going to have to adjust. Get cut. Junkie got cut off. Yep. When she says Contessa is the one who recommended the boosters be ceased, he becomes angry and he s tries to smash a table with his power. But he fails to do so because the custodian interferes and seeing how weak he's become takes the fight out of him. It's almost as if Idolan not getting or getting those booster shots is no longer on that path to victory anymore, Matt. Yeah, seems like that. Yeah, not good. And, we're, and we finally kind of glimpse his, I mean, we've seen before where his head is at, but basically he's saying, this is all I have. It's my career, my life. It's my legacy. Some have children, flesh and blood, to carry their name and their memories. I went without for your sake, for the world's sake. I didn't have children because I wanted to save lives more than anything else. And I made peace with that. It was because I told myself this, was, this would be my legacy. So yeah, we already understand that this is Eidolon's Eidolon's whole life. This is his identity, but we're getting it reinforced and, and elaborated here. Yeah, and, and this is very obvious and intentional there's this huge thing is going to happen at the end of this chapter so a lot of the heavy lifting narratively throughout this chapter is to get us to understand that mindset as much as possible to to really reinforce where he is mentally um and and this is a big part of it that desperation that mask that he's wearing is his power is a physical one and it's cracking too and it's literally literally all he has yeah so yeah, basically the doctor refuses him and he's almost like physically destroyed by this. And uh, he leaves, or the doctor leaves with Contessa 
And as they're leaving, he he's watching Contessa and he's thinking to himself about how she never says anything around him and he understands why this is. Basically, it's that she could get him to do whatever she wants. She could she she would know exactly the right thing to say and he would she could even say the right thing uh, that would not only get him to do what she wants, but have him be happy about it and think it was his idea. Um, so, but, but, but he also anticipates that if he did do that, then he would come to resent her because he would understand that that's what was happening eventually. Um, mainly because he's, he's a blind spot for her and, and, and her power doesn't really work perfectly on him. Um, so he, it's just kind of reminding us how Contessa's power works. And, uh, yeah, the second time we've been reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, almost as if it's part of a three beat. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I love I love this because it's it's confirmation that like her power is so ridiculously powerful. And like we're saying it like the only thing worse than having this power is being someone that knows about it and knows that she could beat you if she wanted to know that like, if she says or does something uh, or, or or ordered something, it's because you've already lost. Like, that's why he got so mad when Contessa said no more formula because he knows that she's right that that like he can't even argue with it at that point um and yeah we're, we're, we're this is very very important this is beat number two we've reinforced we set up and reinforced her power to win arguments with words yep yep <laughs> so back in the present glassic when he catches him as he falls and the fight continues tattletale talks to him and he remembers his thought about going out in a blaze of glory from one of his flashbacks. He says that they have some things they want to try first. Yeah. And once again, you are who you choose to be. Mm-hmm. Idolan could have left here. He, he got the green light. You can leave. You can fly away. But he has to be powerful. He has to fight. With the booster shots gone, that blaze of glory death is all he has left for his legacy. And so he has to do it. So he made a choice here and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like how in his head he's thinking like, yes, I'll go out on a blaze of glory. And yeah. then he says, yeah, yeah, we, we have some things we want to try. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> so Idolin has reactive teleporting now. So he, he pops away whenever a blast comes in. Glastigwenye creates a metal dragon summoning. Uh, <laughs> He he points out that it's just the two of them left, and she mentions the wounded and dying below. Hint, hint. Hint, hint, yes. Scion starts to come after Idolin, specifically radiating distaste. Idolin uses an explosive carbon generation power and thinks he might have harmed Scion with it, but it seems that Scion heals so fast that he can't even tell if it happened or not. Yeah, and it's fun to look at that distaste now, knowing what we know. We actually got a question from one of the listeners, uh, Dark Glass, on it. Because um, this specifically calls back to uh, the Leviathan fight when when Scion looks at Idolin with that taste and distaste, and, and Taylor catches it. Um, and and knowing what we know now, it makes sense, right? He's he's equipped with a dead shard of his dead companion that Cauldron stole and put in him. It doesn't belong to him. It's not his. And so yeah, it, it makes sense that he looks at this guy like, ugh. Yep. Yep. I, I agree. I think that's. It's nice that we're reminded of that because yeah. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Um, so he he's he's injured in Scion's counterattack and he gets a regeneration power in response to that injury. But it, it's a, it's kind of 
it's an interesting regeneration power that leaves him with bony ridges where the wounds were. La Sigüeña is, is using a cluster of four spirits and throwing bombs at Sion. Hi, Bakara. Good to Thank, see you. Thanks, you crazy bomb maker, you. Yeah, we, we missed her. Did we? Uh, no. Did we, though? I don't think so. So now we flash back again two years ago, and we're back at the meeting of Cauldron just after Echidna reveals everything. Legend is furious, and the doctor is entirely unrepentant. Aren't you ashamed? Legend asked, his voice rising. I'm ashamed, Idolan murmured. Heads turned. I failed on many levels. We lost this fight. We've lost before, Alexandria spoke. Idolan looked up at her. Can you look at me and tell me we wouldn't have won this years ago when I was new to the game? So I pulled this out because for Idolan, everything is framed in terms of not being strong enough. Yeah, he's doing all this to save people. I think his underlying motives are good, but it's all completely wrapped up in being strong. Not not just being strong, being the strongest. Yeah, it's interesting because you're absolutely right that he, he repeats over and over again, I want to save people. I want to help people. But But that like like taylor did at the beginning of the arc where she used the the names of the dead people it's just fuel to to lead into his lust for power that lust to get more powerful to have more power and i sure hope like there's not some all-knowing entity that like uses that against him in any way yeah no i I don't know i don't know about that (laughs) yeah so uh so anyway this this meeting ends with them telling legend that Sion is the one who ends the world, which kind of brings him back on board at least a little bit. Yeah. And I'm glad we finally got to see this scene. Um, I feel like we were, we were setting up legend as being like so disgusted with the truth of cauldron that he would like eventually kind of dismantle them from within or something that that thread was kind of uh, dropped as the story moved to different places. But uh, I think this ties it off in a very believable manner, but it also makes you feel really bad for legend. Like he's disgusted but what can he do? What can he do? Yeah, yeah. It also makes me wonder if he's a little bit manipulated here because Contessa is in the room for this. So. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Adolin uh, took on the form of a living field of distorted space, which is pretty cool. I don't recall seeing him take a breaker power this dramatic before. Yeah, and I, I had a lot of trouble visualizing it, not because of like, the writing or anything, but just because it's like, it's so far out of my simple earth brain comprehension that I had to reread this a few times before I was like, okay, I kind of get what's happening here. Yeah. I guess it's like, it's one of those powers like annex or, 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 um, Watson where it's, it's uh, the person kind of disaggregates. So he's able to do damage and also take damage while evading pretty effectively, but he still gets hit and, and spread out too much. And Glastagwenye gathers him back together and creates a very strong shield around them so they can talk for a second. She tells him that he's strong, but he just needs to open his eyes. She tells him that he just needs to assume responsibility for his duties. And she talks about binaries, life and death, reflections. Um, and, and, and she asks, or he asks if, um, I forget what he asks here, but she says, um, you're thinking along the right lines. I am alive as the fairy queen. I collect the dead. I tap them for my strength to better shepherd them. You are the high priest of the stillborn fairy, but you could tap the living for strength. So I think this is about as explicit as we're going to get from her. He realizes that he can tap into the powers of the living and 
he gropes for a sensory or mental power that will allow him to take advantage of this. After discarding six powers, the seventh finally arrives, and he sees the passengers of the dying people below, and he sucks the energy out of the four of them. He He's already kind of written them off, basically, so he just takes their power. Yeah, so much for saving people, huh? Yeah, yeah. like I said, this is, this is the life-death foil of these two characters fully realized that she she takes from the dead he takes from the living and and they have their own purpose with the dead and the living and how they interact with each other and that's interesting um i don't know like i mean it's hard to say where it's gonna go because like i really like i read this and i was like oh my god he's gonna like get drunk with this power and he's gonna start like sucking power from everyone he sees in order to get more powerful but we don't really get to see that play out because things happen (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean that that is that is interesting. That 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 would be a very plausible evolution because he could just be like, oh yes, if I if I have everyone's power, then I could be as strong as Zion. Yes. Yeah, and it seems um, like like it seemed at the time before I realized where the story was going, it seemed like that was that's what we, by reinforcing his his lust for power over and over again, it seemed like that's what we were setting up. But it's something no. quite quite different. No, no, not no, just just tragedy, Scott. Just always tragedy. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah, so he's uh, now that he has this extra power, he's finally able to tap into powers that he hasn't used since the beginning. Very strong powers. And he starts using them, and Sion runs, and Adolin chases. And then we flash back to May of 1986, back in the beginning. David is a young man suffering from severe seizures, so despondent about not being useful, not being able to help people, that he recently tried to kill himself. The doctor offers him her deal, deal with the devil, and he accepts. And once again, we get this beat about killing yourself, right? Like we've seen mm-hmm. this many times. I mean, like this is this is the most directly suicide, whereas the others are just like, I'm going to sacrifice myself. But um, and again, this is this is all very useful information to contextualize who David, who Idolin is. We keep hitting that beat, the, the beat of helping people, amassing power to help people. And I, again, this is intentional for where things are leading, I think. Yeah. So so we go back to the present, and, and he continues to chase Sion between worlds. A world without air, he held his breath. A world of magma and smoke. Glastigwenye provided the protective shield. More and more remote Earths, less habitable, less familiar. Earth bet was a long, long way behind them. And this is just purely epic. There's a, It's just really fun. Yeah, and it's... I think we're like... Sion's running at this point and and we're enforcing that like okay yeah he just sucked power from these people and left them for dead but now they're fighting on this multi-dimensional scale and it's like the best shot our our heroes have ever had like he's actually forced this guy to run they're like things have moved so far beyond our street level comprehension now so it's like look at this epic thing these two people that seem evenly matched oh my god yeah, it gives you such a hint, uh, such a sense of hope because yeah. not only is Sion running, but Idolin is is successfully chasing him. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So as they chase Sion, uh, Idolin asks Glastigwenye if she's going to betray him. She explains that Sion is using up his reserves by fighting, and if he fights too long, he'll just decide it's not worth it and go to sleep, bide his time. She wants this or claims to, and he believes her. Yeah, and I think my brain started thinking i think we got hints at this in the entity chapter but that's how you, that's how you can beat this guy that you force him to use his power against you and and to use as much of it as possible until he 
can't because he's he starts running out of time. And so I think that's going to come into play later in the later in the story. Yeah, so I, I hope so. Yeah. So I got a chunk to read here. OK, it, go ahead. There's no other way to do it. Justice. Kind of important. Yeah. Scion spoke for the second time. Four words, barely audible. It took time to sink in. Adolan let his hand drop to his side. He turned the sounds around in his head, trying to convince himself of a different configuration, convince himself he had heard wrong. But he hadn't. It dawned on Adolan. He has Contessa's power. How many years did it cost Scion to use it? Not enough, he was convinced. Scion had defeated him. Scion raised a hand, and Adolan didn't move. Classic Gwenye was fleeing. Scion fired the lethal blast. And here's here's the end of our three beat there, Matt. You know, we set it up, we reinforce it, and now we kind of subvert it a little bit here. We we know that Contessa wins conversations easily because she knows the exact words to say to convince you of what she wants to convince you of. And we remind ourselves of that with, with Idolan's realization that even with him as a blank spot, she can still control that conversation. And then we subvert it. Scion has this power. Of course, Scion has this power. And he uses it. That's right. And then in the final addendum interlude chapter, he says those four words, which are scary clown behind you. No, I he just, says, I just unconsciously <laughs> looked behind me. <laughs> you needed worthy opponents. So, so we can talk about, there's a lot to talk about, actually. I mean, you can talk about just the fact of having a four-word chapter, um, what that must feel like to say, oh, a new chapter, and then it's four words. But, you know, or, or we can talk about the content of it, which I would have I would have relatively less to say because um, I would spoil things. Well, I'm going to speculate um, about what this okay. means and my theory behind it. Um, and we can do it here. We can save it for a formal section. But yeah, I, I think talking about the structure of it and how it is done is uh, is great. I think we should yeah. do it because yeah, I th- yeah, I think I think structure first because your speculations are going to come right after this anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously there's a there's a way in which you just have this be the 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 end of your chapter right you just stick this on the end and you just have mm-hmm. that be the end of the chapter and then you break away from it um, and that has a certain amount of effect to it absolutely it does but again this is a serial story we are using the fact that ep chapters are posted day by day over a course of time and if you want something to feel so important that um Everyone will remember it. Making it the entire chapter is the perfect way of doing that. Yeah, yeah, it lends it so much weight this way. Um, it's it it's it's a mystery. Also, it's one thing I like about right. it. It's not like it's not like he says a thing and you're just like, oh yeah, I can see why that would. No, you're you're like, what is that? What is yeah? Wait, but why would you know? <laughs> and, and 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 yeah, like like you. I mean, I think I think everyone probably generates their own theory about about what it is and and, you know you you, various people may be more or less correct about about their theory but the point is it 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 totally it's 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 arresting and it makes you think and it just deepens the mystery if anything because 
it's not it's not like it's an answer you know yeah it's um it's it it can it it may it may contain an answer because it obviously is something that affected i don't enough that he just gave up um but uh i mean this was their last best hope this was this was it and and for a second there they were winning it seemed scion was running and then he realized that no that the i mean even he like Scion is is the most predator predator because when he realizes literally he's expending too much energy, he just changes his tactic. And like you never had a shot. You never had a shot. And it's so destroying. And like the reactions that I got when I got to this chapter in the Discord on Twitter made it very clear that this is one of the most memorable moments of the story. And a big part of that reason is because it's in its own chapter. Because you're yeah. not going to forget the forward chapter. How could you forget the forward chapter? Yeah, right. It's yeah. That's what's that's what's cool about it to me is like it wouldn't be as memorable if it weren't so compelling and mysterious. But if it were just compelling and mysterious, and it were in, and it were part of a normal chapter, it wouldn't be so memorable. Yeah, as it as it is because it's a chapter unto itself. And I, I just yeah. I mean, I'm at at this point, I think I'm repeating myself, but. <laughs> It's it, it is it is really cool because everyone, you know, including me and I think including you have a really strong reaction to this and think it's really cool. Um, it's a really cool idea. Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. I have I have really little to add about it. It's just I, I love it. I've always loved it. It's, so. it's great. Um, it's funny because I was about like I usually have to finish up my my live tweet read um, the next day because I run out of time in the mm-hmm. afternoon and I was like literally about to tweet out, I'm going to have to finish the next chapter tomorrow. And I just like moved over to the page just to get a, a look at it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, and it's great. And for my part, I was sitting there thinking pretty much all that day, like, OK, OK, if he gets right to the end of, of if he gets right to that point, how am I going to say to him, Scott, just uh, just click over just. Do me a favor. Just click over to the next one for just a second. Just <laughs> check something out for me. I was I was like iterating on how I would phrase that if that were to happen. So luckily, didn't have to happen. That and way. I'm guessing this is the chapter that people wanted me to like record myself reading. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think some people wanted your like live reaction to the Scion interlude, actually. Oh, okay. Which which that would have been more like. I mean, that is basically what your Twitter live stream is, yeah. frankly. So. I mean, like, I don't, like, again, guys, I don't, like, I didn't yell. <laughs> I didn't, like, say, what? Yeah. I, I mean, I did that in my brain, but yeah. I don't have right. physical reactions. And if I did, they, I feel like they would be forced, and it just wouldn't be good. Yeah. It was great. It was wonderful. I liked it. Um, let's get to what what I think it is here in yeah, a minute. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. You uh, you bring us bring us on into the landing with those speculations. All right. So before we do that, I'm going to clear through some of the old ones. Um, I said Sophia a long, long time ago. Sophia will no longer be a ward after the events of this chapter. I don't even remember what chapter that is, but will play a part in the story to come. And that was correct. Here she is playing a part in the story to come. So, yay. yay. That was one of those kind of gimme ones, I think. Um, but I gimmied it. Um and then I said the PRT will release birdcage prisoners to assist in the end of world prevention. Um, I'm going to give myself that. I mean, they, like I originally thought it would be like to stop Jack or something, but it's close enough. Yeah. And then I said Saint will do a shitty job as replacement dragging 
dragon resulting in a lot of death. Millions. Millions. Yeah. on a roll. Yeah. Thanks. Nice. Saint. It sucks. Nice. All right. So for my new ones, I got a few this week. Um, first, we've already said, rest in peace, Brian. I think he dies in this moment. Um, he did not get off that oil rig. He's dead, which is very sad. And I don't know how Taylor's going to handle it, but I can guess it will not be in a good way. Okay. Uh, number two, I'm guessing that Contessa is is that third entity like there's a third entity that like threw off scion's counterpart um Mm -hmm. and i'm guessing contessa is that entity i'm guessing because that has to play like i'm trying to figure out like i'm trying to figure out how cauldron and contessa and her power that is so powerful that scion has it too um exists in this thing so that's my guess okay okay and then finally let's talk about Uh, Let's talk about those four words and what they they mean. So my interpretation of this, and I think I told you this before, um, I I had an idea. I had a guess of something before I read these four words. And then I spent, Matt, I spent hours. I spent hours thinking about this thing and what (laughs) they could mean. Um, And so my guess is we're talking about the Endbringers. Um, My guess is that we you know you look back at, at Idolan and who he is you look back at his, his he's motivated to save people his legacy and you look back at at the endbringers and how they served as worthy opponents um and you look at how, what that would do to him what what would what it would do to him if he realized that either and I don't I don't know like I don't think he created them but I think they exist because he wanted them, because he wanted that power. He, to He wanted to become more powerful to save more people. So these things came to give him that opportunity to get more power, to, to fight those worthy opponents. So he fights the Endbringers and gets more powerful. So because I, I look at David and I look at this guy who's always wanted to help people, always wanted to save people, wanted that legacy of he's the guy that saved everyone and what it would do to him if he realized that in his that quest for power, he's responsible for a thing that has killed millions of people, and what that would do to him, what that would do to his idea of his legacy and saving people, and that's what I think it is. So that's my All interpretation. Right. Cool, good stuff, Scott. All right, and that will wrap up our coverage of Arc Twenty Seven Extinction. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. And remember to keep listening for our news section at the end here. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at morefloppinum. That's right. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, over on the other channel, Michael and I talked Stranger Things Season 2. You know, I actually liked the season a lot, but... But we were way more negative than I figured we were going to be. And I'm going to call that the, the Michael effect. <laughs> you can find that and all the other podcasts we do over on that main Daily Planet feed. That's right. Uh, and if you like 
any of these shows and want to support them, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new Planeteers at the $1 level, Tim, Tybo, and Daniel, uh, and also Rob. And at the $2 level, Seergraug, Tringard, and Otterberries. And also special thanks to Captain's Planet, Jacob, and Andy, who are now at the $10 level. Also speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. That's right. And if you can't afford to donate at this time, that's absolutely okay. You can share this great podcast with everyone you know. Ward, Ward, Matt, has started. Mm -hmm. So there's never been a better time to reach out to your friends and tell them to catch up on the world of parahumans with We've Got Worm. Uh, Also, you can head over to iTunes and and leave us a quick rating and review. Every single rating helps us reach new audience, so please consider taking the time to do it. This week's Spotlight Review comes from... How do you pronounce this name, Matt? Kayakin? Kayakin? Kayakin, yeah. I talk to Kayakin all the time in Discord, but I never have to say their name out loud. (laughs) He explained it to me, I think. Okay, good, good. Kayakin gives us five stars and says, Worm is a fantastic series and one that I've enjoyed for a very long time. However, I've always run into a problem of not really knowing what to point out or how to explain why Worm is such a fascinating story. For me, Matt and Scott and We've Got Worm are the perfect solution to that. Their analysis on everything from the characters to recurring themes to individual word choices is incredibly helpful for understanding the why of everything clicking together so well. The two of them are entertaining, insightful, and experienced enough to break everything down and piece it back together in a way that always has me coming back for more. We've Got Worm is a great podcast for both newcomers and returning fans of Worm, and one that I highly recommend to everyone I know. Thanks so much. That was so nice. I, I I love doing this. I love reading these things. We appreciate taking the time to do that. We appreciate all you guys taking the time to rate and review us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, that's it for us this week. Uh, next week, we'll be covering Arc 28, Cockroaches. Scott, any guesses as to what's going to happen? Well, Matt, like Sophia's cockroaches, I'm guessing that in the aftermath of this failed first skirmish with Scion, the heroes are going to scatter. Uh, leaving Taylor, who will, of course, not be ready to give up because she's Taylor, to try and get everyone together and pick up the pieces. Also, also, Gru will be dead. Well, we will find out next week on another exciting episode of We've Got... Wait, Matt, Matt, didn't, didn't, we, uh, didn't we say that we had something special to announce at the end of the episode? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got only four more arcs of Worm left now. Six more episodes. So after teasing this for a while and revealing some of this to our higher tier patrons as part of our monthly Q&A. We're finally ready to to talk to you guys about what life after worm looks like for the Daily Planet. Yeah, we've already promised you guys that we're going to continue with Wild Bo's works on this channel. Uh, But the conversation was about exactly what to do next and how to do it. And I think we've come up with a pretty cool idea that's going to be different from our worm coverage, but still provide the same level analysis that you guys are used to. So Matt, without further ado... Starting Wednesday, January 10th, we are launching We've Got Ward, a weekly podcast discussing, analyzing, and critiquing Wildbo's much-anticipated sequel to Worm. We made this decision for a lot of reasons, but a central one was the idea that we wanted to try our hand at covering something live as it is released. Right. Worm was my very first exposure to the world of web serials, so I've never gotten the opportunity to read one as it was written. And I think this is a really unique 
experience that would be so fun and interesting to t talk and discuss in detail. So uh, we're going to do it. Um, you might be a little confused as to how exactly that's going to work, uh, because how do, how do you talk about something as it comes out? How often is it going to be? Um, so, so we're just going to lay this out for you guys. Here's our planned show format, though. I have to, I have to note that before I say this, I must stress that this is absolutely not set in stone. Just like with, we've got worm, uh, we're going to jump in with a plan, but be ready to adapt and change as we see what is and isn't working. This is new for us. So, so we, we hope you guys will be patient as we figure this out. But, um, First, because Ward has already started, it's started right now, I think that the third chapter is coming out as you and I talk, Matt, um, we're going to have to play catch-up. We're, we're estimating that there's going to be between three to five arcs released by the time we're ready to jump into it, based on, you know, if it's a two-chapter week or a three-chapter week and how long the arcs are. We don't really know yet, but um, the, the first few weeks of We've Got Ward will look very much like the standard episode you guys are used to, uh, with Matt having read the arcs before and me reading them for the first time. We'll discuss, analyze, and maybe even speculate a little um, in the same level of detail you've grown accustomed to. Once we catch up, though, to where the story is live, the show format will shift. That's right. From then on, each week, Scott and I will discuss the latest chapters. Two to three chapters were released, um, and, and we'll talk about what happened. Uh, we'll talk about what we think will happen next. We will put out a weekly call to you, our listeners, to find out what you think. We, uh, what were your favorite moments? What are your speculations? And uh, we'll then discuss our responses on the pod. The goal would be that this is a 30-minute to one-hour weekly companion podcast while you're reading. Yeah, we've. I think we've talked about making that a regularly scheduled live stream thing, um, where you can interact with us directly, and and not like our live stream recordings of Warren we do every once in a while, but an actual like, like you ask questions or you give comments and we actually respond on the podcast. Um, but all that changes once Wildbow completes an arc. Then we dive in. Each time an arc is completed, the next week's episode will be replaced by a deep dive analysis by both Matt and I. This will be less of the moment-to-moment -moment recap since, since we've already kind of done that in the individual weekly episodes, but it will be a deep dive analysis of the arc as the whole. Uh, the themes, what worked well, what didn't, exploring Wildbow's writing in detail. It'll, it'll be the kind of in-depth two-and-a-half-hour podcast you guys are used to us doing. And we'll repeat it this way until Ward's award is is done so every week we'll do that quick short podcast until the arc's done and then we'll do a longer podcast and then we'll start up again yeah and we think this structure gives us the best of both worlds it allows the community that we've grown through this podcast to remain together and continue to enjoy reading and experiencing award together each and every week while also still delivering the type of arc wide analysis you guys are used to again this is all subject to change if we started off and things aren't working like we think they should uh, then we'll adjust. But one way or another, we've got Ward. So many great things are happening. I think 2018 is going to be awesome. I can't wait to explore this new book live with all of you. I'm so excited about it. It's going to be so fun. Yeah, I, I'm very excited too. Uh, but for now, we've got to finish up Worm. Yeah. So check back next week for Arc 28 of We've Got Worm. Woo!